The committee will reconvene. When we recessed, uh, we were about to hear from Mr. Castor. Mr. Castor, you are re recognized for 45 minutes. Afternoon, Chairman, Ranking Member Collins, members of the committee, members of the staff. Thank you again for having me back uh, and giving me the opportunity to testify about the evidence gathered uh, during our um, the impeachment inquiry. At the outset, let me say that the evidence does not support the allegations that my Democrat colleagues have made. And I don't believe the evidence leads to the conclusions they suggest. I'm hopeful to add some important perspective and context to the facts under discussion today. The chief allegation that the Democrats' impeachment inquiry has been trying to assess over the last 76 days is this. Whether President Trump abused the power of his office through a quid pro quo, bribery, extortion, or whatever, by withholding a meeting or security assistance as a way of pressuring Ukrainian President Zelensky to investigate the president's political rival, former VP Biden, for the president's political benefit in the upcoming election. The secondary allegation that has been levied is whether President Trump obstructed Congress during the inquiry. The evidence obtained during the inquiry does not support either of those allegations. The Republican report of evidence lays out the reasons in more detail, but I will summarize. I will begin with the substantive allegation about an abuse of power. The inquiry has returned no direct evidence that President Trump withheld a meeting or security assistance in order to pressure President Zelensky to investigate former VP Biden. Witnesses who testified in the inquiry have denied having awareness of criminal activity or even an impeachable offense. On the key question of the president's state of mind, there is no clear evidence that President Trump acted with malicious intent. Overall, at best, the impeachment inquiry record is riddled with hearsay, presumptions, and speculation. There are conflicting and ambiguous facts throughout the record, facts that could be interpreted in different ways. To paraphrase, to paraphrase Professor Turley from last week, the impeachment record is heavy on presumptions and empty on proof. That's not me saying that, that is Professor Turley. So let me start with the best direct evidence of any potential quid pro quo or impeachable scheme. This is President Trump's phone call with Zelensky for which the National Security Council and the White House Situation Room staff prepared a call summary. According to testimony from Tim Morrison at the NSC, the summary was accurate and complete. NSC staff member Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman testified that any omissions in the summary were not significant and that editing was not done maliciously. President Trump has declassified and released the call summary so the American people can review it and assess it for themselves. I'll make a few points that seem to have gone undernoticed. 
The call summary reflects absolutely no pressure or conditionality. President Zelensky vocalized no concerns with the subject matters discussed. And there is no indication of bribery, extortion, or other illegal conduct on the call. The call summary shows President Trump and President Zelensky engaged in pleasantries and cordialities. The call summary reveals laughter. Simply put, the call is not the sinister mob shakedown that some Democrats have described. President Trump raised his concerns about European allies paying their fair share in security assistance to Ukraine, a concern that President Trump would continue to raise both publicly and privately. There is no discussion on the call, I repeat, no discussion on the call about the upcoming 2020 election or security sector assistance to Ukraine. Beyond the call summary, the next best piece of evidence are the statements from the two participants on the call. President Zelensky has said he felt no pressure on the call. On September 25th at the United Nations, he said, we had, I think, a good phone call. It was normal. Nobody pushed me. On October 6th, President Zelensky said, I was never pressured and there were no conditions being imposed. Four days later, on October 10th, President Zelensky said again, there was nothing wrong with the call, no blackmail. This is not corruption. It was just a call. And just recently in Time Magazine, President Zelensky said, I never talked to the president from a position of a quid pro quo. Because President Zelensky would be the target of any alleged quid pro quo scheme, his statements denying any pressure carry significant weight. He is, in fact, the supposed victim here. Other senior Ukrainian government officials confirmed President Zelensky's statements. Foreign Minister Pristyko said on September 21st, I know what the conversation was about, and I think there was no pressure. Alexander Daniluk, who was then Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, told Ambassador Bill Taylor on the night of the call that the Ukrainian government was not disturbed by anything on the call. President Trump, of course, has also said that he did not pressure President Zelensky. On September 25th, President Trump said there was no pressure. When asked if he wanted President Zelensky to do more to investigate the former VP, President Trump responded, no, I want him to do whatever he can. But whatever he, he can do in terms of corruption, because corruption is massive, that's what he should do. Several witnesses attested to the president's concerns about Ukrainian corruption. The initial readouts of the July 25th call from both the Ukrainian government and the State Department raised no concerns. Although Lieutenant Colonel Vindman noted concerns, those concerns were not shared by National Security Council leadership. They were not shared by General Keith Kellogg, who listened on the call. Lieutenant General Kellogg said in a statement, 
I heard nothing wrong or improper on the call. I had and have no concerns. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's superior, Tim Morrison, testified that he was concerned the call would leak and be misused in Washington's political process. But he did not believe that anything discussed on the call was illegal or improper. Much has also been made about President Trump's reference on the July 25th call to Hunter Biden's position on the board of Burisma, a corrupt Ukrainian energy company, and the actions of certain Ukrainian officials in the run-up to the 2016 election. Democrats dismiss these conspiracy theories to suggest that the president has no legitimate reason other than his own political interests to raise these issues with President Zelensky. The evidence, however, shows that there are legitimate questions about both issues. With respect to Burisma, Deputy Assistant Secretary George Kent testified that the company had a reputation for corruption. The company was founded by Mykola Zochevsky, who served as Ukraine's Minister of Ecology and Natural Resources. When Zochevsky served in that role, his company, Burisma, received oil exploration licenses without public auctions. Burisma brought Hunter Biden onto its board of, direction, board of directors, according to the New York Times, as part of a broad effort by Burisma to bring in well-connected Democrats during a period when the company was facing investigations backed not just by domestic Ukrainian forces, but by officials in the Obama administration. George Kent testified about these efforts. Hunter Biden reportedly received between $50,000 and $83,000 a month as compensation for his position on Burisma's board. At the time that Hunter Biden joined the board, his father, the former VP, was the Obama administration's point person for Ukraine. Biden has no specific corporate governance expertise, and we don't believe he speaks Ukrainian or Russian. We don't believe he moved there. So he's getting this gigantic paycheck for what? The Washington Post wrote at the time of Biden's appointment to Burisma's board that it looked nepotistic at best, and the Washington Post said, the Washington Post, nefarious at worst. According to the Wall Street Journal, anti-corruption activists in Ukraine also raised concerns that the former VP's son received money from Zochevsky and worried that that would mean Zochevsky would be protected and not prosecuted. Witnesses in the impeachment inquiry noted Hunter Biden's role on the board and how it presented at minimum a conflict of interest. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman testified that Hunter Biden did not appear qualified to serve on Burisma's board. Witnesses testified that Hunter Biden's role on the board was a legitimate concern to raise. In fact, George Kent explained that in 2015, he raised a concern to the office of former Vice President Biden, that Hunter Biden's role on Burisma's board presented a potential conflict of interest. 
However, Hunter Biden's role did not change, and former Vice President Biden continued to lead U.S. policy in Ukraine. On this record, there is a legitimate basis for President Trump to have concern about Hunter Biden's role on Burisma's board. The prospect that some senior Ukrainian officials worked against President Trump in the run-up to the 2016 election draws an even more visceral reaction from most Democrats. Let me say very, very clearly that election interference is not binary. I'm not saying that it was Ukraine and not Russia. I'm saying that both countries can work to influence an election. A systemic coordinated Russian interference effort does not mean that some Ukrainian officials, some Ukrainian officials, did not work to oppose President Trump's candidacy, did not make statements against President Trump during the election. Ambassador Volker testified in his public hearing that it is possible for more than one country to seek influence in U.S. elections. Dr. Hill testified, likewise, at her public hearing. Contemporaneous news articles in 2016 noted how President Trump's candidacy led Kyiv's wider political leadership to do something they would never have attempted before, intervene, however indirectly, in a U.S. election. In August 2016, the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S. published an op-ed in The Hill criticizing candidate Trump. Other senior Ukrainian officials called candidate Trump a clown and other words. They alleged that he challenged the very values of the free world. One prominent Ukrainian parliamentarian explained that the majority of Ukraine's political figures were on Hillary Clinton's side. A January 2017 Politico article lays out in more detail efforts by the Ukrainian government officials to oppose President Trump's candidacy. The article notes how Ukraine worked to sabotage the Trump campaign by publicly questioning his fitness for office. The article detailed how a woman named Alexandra Chalupa, a Ukrainian-American contractor, paid by the DNC and working with the DNC and the Clinton campaign, traded information and leads about the Trump campaign with the staff at the Ukrainian embassy in Washington. Chalupa explained how the Ukrainian embassy worked directly with reporters to point them in the right direction. Witnesses in the impeachment inquiry testified that the allegation of Ukrainian influence in the 2016 election was appropriate to examine. Ambassador Volker testified that he thought it was fine to investigate allegations about 2016 influence. Ambassador Taylor said, for example, that the allegations surprised and disappointed him. On this record, I do not believe that one could conclude that President Trump had no legitimate basis to raise a concern about efforts by Ukrainians to influence the 2016 election. Let me now turn to the first assertion that President Trump withheld a meeting with President Zelensky as a way of pressuring him to investigate the former VP. 
Here, it is important to note Ukraine's long, profound history of endemic corruption. Several witnesses in the inquiry have testified about these problems. Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, for example, said Ukraine's corruption is not just prevalent, but frankly is the system. Witnesses testified to having firsthand knowledge that President Trump is deeply skeptical of Ukraine due to its corruption, dating back years, and that this skepticism contributed to President Trump's initial hesitancy to meet with President Zelensky. Ambassador Volker testified, so I know he had a very deep-rooted skeptical view. And my understanding at the time was that even though he agreed in the meeting that we had with him, say, okay, I'll invite him, I'll invite him, he didn't really want to do it, Volker said. And that's why the meeting kept getting delayed. Another relevant set of facts here is the effort of some Ukrainian officials to oppose President Trump's candidacy in the 2016 election. Some of these Ukrainian politicians initially remained in government when President Zelensky took over. Witnesses testified that these Ukrainian efforts in 2016 colored how President Trump viewed Ukraine. It's also important to note that President Zelensky was a relatively unknown quantity for U.S. policymakers. Ambassador Ivanovich called him an untried politician. Dr. Hill testified that there were concerns within the National Security Council about Zelensky's relationship with Igor Kolomoisky, a controversial oligarch in Ukraine. Although President Zelensky ran on a reform platform, President Zelensky appointed Kolomoisky's lawyer, Mr. Bodon, as his chief of staff. Both Ambassador Volker and Senator Ron Johnson noted that this appointment raised concerns. These facts are important in assessing the president's state of mind in understanding whether President Zelensky was truly committed to fighting corruption in Ukraine. The evidence shows that President Trump invited President Zelensky to meet at the White House on three separate occasions, all without any conditions. The first was on April 21st during the initial congratulatory phone call. The second was via letter on May 29th. This letter followed an Oval Office meeting on May 23rd with the U.S. delegation to the inauguration. During this meeting, President Trump again expressed his skepticism about Ukraine. Ambassador Volker recalled the president saying, these are terrible people and a corrupt country. Ambassador Sondland similarly testified that Ukraine in the president's view, tried to take him down in the 2016 election. Senator Ron Johnson confirmed this testimony in his submission to the impeachment inquiry. Finally, the third time that President Trump invited Zelensky to meet, again without any preconditions, was during the July 25th phone call. Although some time passed between May 2019, when the president formally invited Zelensky to meet, and September 25th, when the presidents met, the evidence does not show that the Ukrainian government felt additional pressure due to this delay. To the contrary, Ambassador Volker testified that the Ukrainian regime felt pretty good about its relationship with the Trump administration in this period. During those four months, senior Ukrainian government officials had at least nine meetings or phone calls with President Trump, Vice President Pence, Secretary Pompeo, National Security Advisor Bolton, and U.S. Ambassadors. 
The evidence does not support a conclusion that President Trump conditioned a meeting with President Zelensky on investigating former Vice President Biden. Mr. Yarmack, President Zelensky's close advisor, said that explicitly in an August 2019 New York Times story, which was published before the beginning of the impeachment inquiry. In this article, Yarmack said that he and Mayor Giuliani did not discuss a link between a presidential meeting and investigations. Witness testimony confirms Yarmack's statement. Ambassador Volker testified there was no linkage between a potential meeting and investigations. Although Ambassador Sondland testified that he believed there was a quid pro quo, his testimony is not as clear as it has been portrayed. In his deposition, Ambassador Sondland testified that he believed the meeting was conditioned on a public anti-corruption statement, not on investigations themselves, a distinction that during his deposition he was keen to note. Ambassador Sondland said then that nothing about the request raised any red flags. In his public testimony, Ambassador Sondland clarified that he had no firsthand knowledge of any linkage coming from the president and never discussed any preconditions with the president. He merely presumed there were preconditions. I'd also like to address the July 10th meeting in Ambassador Bolton's office with two senior Ukrainian officials. Allow me to submit that here, too, there is conflicting evidence about the facts. Both Dr. Hill and Lieutenant Colonel Vindman testified that Ambassador Sondland raised investigations during this meeting, causing Ambassador Bolton to abruptly end the meeting. Dr. Hill testified she confronted Ambassador Sondland over his discussion about investigations. Ambassador Sondland's testimony about this meeting, however, is scattered. In his closed-door deposition, he testified that no National Security staff member ever once expressed concerns to him that he was acting improperly. And he denied that he raised investigations during this meeting. But when he came here to testify in public, he acknowledged for the first time that he raised investigations but he denied that the meeting ended abruptly. He maintained that Dr. Hill never raised concerns to him and that any discussion of investigations did not mention anything specific, such as Biden or 2016. Let me lastly address the allegation that President Trump directed Vice President Pence not to attend President Zelensky's inauguration as another way of pressuring Ukraine to investigate former Vice President Biden. Jennifer Williams, a senior advisor in the office of the Vice President, testified that a colleague, she said it was the Chief of Staff's assistant, told her, the Chief of Staff's assistant, that President Trump had directed Vice President Pence not to attend the inauguration. However, Williams had no firsthand knowledge of any such direction or the reasons given for any such direction. If indeed such a direction was given, it's not clear from the evidence why it was done. It's because the vice president's office was juggling other potential trips during that time. And the Ukrainian parliament 
scheduled, scheduled the election on an extremely short time frame. It was just four days notice. Williams explained that there was a window. There was a window of dates, May 30th through June 1st, during which the vice president could attend the inauguration, and that was communicated. And that if it wasn't one of those dates, it would be difficult or impossible to attend the inauguration. Separately, the office of the vice president was also planning an unrelated trip to Canada to promote the USMCA during the same window. The USMCA was and still is a significant priority for the administration. Vice President Pence has done a number of public events in support of it. President Trump was also planning foreign travel during this time period. And as Dr. Hill testified, both President Trump and Vice President Pence cannot both be out of the country at the same time. Williams explained that these factors created a narrow window for the Vice President's participation in the inauguration. Dr. Hill testified that she had no knowledge that the Vice President was directed not to attend. On May 16th, the outgoing Ukrainian Parliament scheduled the inauguration for May 20th, only four days later. May 20th was not one of the three dates that Vice President uh, Pence's office had provided for his availability. Williams testified that this early date surprised the Vice President's office because we weren't expecting the Ukrainians to look at that time frame. George Kent at the State Department said that this short notice from the Ukrainians forced the State Department to scramble to find a U.S. official to lead the delegation, finally settling on Secretary of Energy Rick Perry. On May 20th, the date of President Zelensky's inauguration, Vice President Pence was in Jacksonville, Florida for an event promoting USMCA. Finally, on September 25th, President Trump and President Zelensky met during the United Nations General Assembly. The two met without Ukraine ever taking action on investigations, and according to Ambassador Taylor, there was no discussion of investigations during this meeting. I will now turn to the second assertion that President Trump withheld taxpayer-funded security assistance to Ukraine as a way of pressuring Zelensky to conduct these investigations. Here, too, context is critically important. President Trump has been skeptical of foreign assistance in general and believes quite strongly that our European allies should share more of the burden for regional defense. That's an assertion he made on the campaign trail, something he's raised consistently since. It's also important to note that U.S. security assistance is conditioned to countries around the world and that U.S. aid, including aid to Ukraine, has been temporarily paused in the past for various reasons and even for no reason at all. Ambassador Volker testified the 55-day pause on security assistance did not strike him as uncommon and that the pause was not significant. Dr. Hill and State Department official Catherine Croft both testified that security assistance to Ukraine specifically had been temporarily paused in the past. In fact, Ambassador David Hale, the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, the third uh, most senior person at the State Department, testified that the National Security Council had launched a review of U.S. foreign assistance across the world to make sure taxpayer dollars were spent in the national interest and to advance the principle of burden sharing by our allies. Dr. Hill testified that as she was leaving the NSC in July, there had been a directive for a whole-scale review of our foreign policy assistance. 
She said there had been more scrutiny on security assistance as a result. Another important data point is President Trump's willingness to take a stronger stance in supporting Ukraine against Russian aggression. And and compared to the previous administration. Several witnesses testified that President Trump's willingness to provide Ukraine with lethal defensive assistance, Javelin anti-tank missiles, was a substantial improvement, a stronger policy, and a significant decision. When we discussed Democrat allegations that President Trump withheld vital security assistance dollars from Ukraine, we should also remember that it was President Trump and not President Obama who provided Ukraine with lethal defensive weapons. I make all of these points here because there are relevant pieces of information that bear on how the House should view the evidence in question. Although the security assistance was paused in July, the evidence is virtually silent on the definitive reason for the pause. In fact, the only direct evidence of the reason for the pause comes from OMB official Mark Sandy who testified that he learned in September that the pause was related to the president's concern about other countries contributing more to Ukraine. He explained how OMB received requests for information on what other countries were contributing to Ukraine, which OMB provided in the first week of September. The aid, of course, was released September 11th. Several witnesses have testified that security assistance was not linked to Ukraine's investigations. Ambassador Volker's testimony is particularly relevant on this point because he was a key intermediary with Ukrainian government and someone who they trusted and sought for advice. Ambassador Volker testified that he was aware of no quid pro quo and the Ukrainians never raised such concerns to him. When Ambassador Taylor raised the possibility of a quid pro quo to Ambassador Volker, Volker said he replied, there's no linkage here. During his deposition, Chairman Schiff tried to pin him down on this point, but Ambassador Volker was clear there was no connection. In his public testimony, Ambassador Volker reiterated there was no linkage. Similarly, George Kent at the State Department said he did not associate aid to investigations, and he relayed how Ambassador Taylor told him that Tim Morrison and Ambassador Sondland also believed the two were not linked. Ambassador Sondland's testimony, as we have seen already, is a bit more scattered. In his deposition, he said that he was never aware of preconditions on security assistance or that the security assistance was tied to investigations. Ambassador Sondland then later provided a written statement supplementing his deposition in which he explained for the first time that in the absence of any clear explanation, he presumed a link between security assistance and an anti-corruption statement were, were linked. Ambassador Sondland also attested in his written supplement that he likely voiced this concern to Mr. Yarmack, a close advisor of President Zelensky, on September 1st in Warsaw. Mr. Yarmack, however, in a subsequent news account published on November 22nd, disputed Ambassador Sondland's account and said he doesn't remember any reference to the military aid. In his public testimony, Ambassador Sondland reiterated that his testimony was based on a presumption, acknowledging to Congressman Turner that no one on the planet told him that security assistance to Ukraine was conditioned on investigations. Ambassador Taylor is the other relevant actor here. He testified in his deposition that he had a clear understanding that Ukraine would not receive the security assistance until President Zelensky committed to the investigations. However, in his public testimony, 
Ambassador Ta Taylor acknowledged that his clear understanding came from Ambassador Sondland, who was merely presuming that there was a link. President Trump, too, rejected any linkage between security assistance to Ukraine and investigations. The president's statements in this regard ought to be persuasive because he made the same statement in two separate private conversations with two different U.S. officials 10 days apart. There would be no reason for the president to be anything less than candid during these private conversations. On August 31st, President Trump spoke by phone with Senator Johnson, who was traveling to Ukraine in the coming days and sought the president's permission to tell President Zelensky that the security assistance would be forthcoming. President Trump responded that he was not ready to do that, citing Ukrainian corruption and burden sharing among European allies. When Senator Johnson raised the potential linkage between security assistance and investigation, President Trump vehemently denied any connection, saying, no way, I would never do that. Who told you that? In closing the call, President Trump told Senator Johnson that we're reviewing it now, referring to the security assistance, and, and guess what? You, you'll probably like my final decision. He told that to Senator Johnson on August 31st. This statement strongly suggests that President Trump was already leaning toward lifting the aid. Separately, on September 9th, President Trump spoke by phone with Ambassador Sondland. Ambassador Sondland asked the President, what do you want from Ukraine? President, respond, President Trump responded, I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. I want Zelensky to do the right thing. In addition, senior Ukrainian government officials denied any awareness of a linkage between U.S. security assistance and investigations. These denials are persuasive because if there was, in fact, an orchestrated scheme to pressure Ukraine by withholding security assistance, one would think the pause on security assistance would have been clearly communicated to the Ukrainians. Foreign Minister Prostyko told the media in November, following news of Ambassador Sondland's written supplemental testimony, that Sondland never linked security assistance to investigations. Prostyko said, I have never seen a direct relationship between investigations and security assistance. Although there is some testimony that Ukrainian officials from the embassy in Washington made informal inquiries to the State Department and Defense Department about these issues with security assistance in July and August, the evidence does not show President Zelensky or his senior advisors in Kyiv were aware of the pause until it was publicly reported by Politico on August 28th. A subsequent news article explained the conflicting testimony that embassy officials in Washington had made informal inquiries about issues with the aid, while senior officials in Kyiv denied awareness of the pause. The article explained that then-Ukrainian Ambassador Chali, who was appointed by President Zelensky's predecessor, went rogue and did not inform President Zelensky that there was any issue with the aid. According to the news account, President Zelensky and his senior team only learned of the pause when it was reported on August 28th. As Ambassador Volker testified, because senior Ukrainian officials were unaware of the pause, there was no leverage implied. The actions of senior Ukrainian government officials while the security assistance was paused reinforces a conclusion that they did not know the aid was on hold. In the 55 days during which the security assistance was paused, President Zelensky had five 
discussions with U.S. senior officials. On the July 25th, he spoke with President Trump on the phone. July 26th, he met with Ambassador Volker, Ambassador Taylor, Ambassador Sondland in Kyiv. On August 27th, he met with Ambassador Bolton. September 1st, he met with Vice President Pence in Warsaw. And on September 5th, he met with Senator Ron Johnson, Senator Chris Murphy in Kyiv. In none of these meetings, did President Zelensky raise any concern about linkage between security assistance and investigations? In particular, the September 5th meeting with Senator Johnson and Senator Murphy is notable because they're not part of the Trump administration and President Zelensky could be candid with them. What did occur during those 55 days were historic efforts by Ukraine's parliament called the RADA to implement anti-corruption reform. Vice President Pence had pressed President Zelensky about these reforms during their September 1st meeting. In their depositions, Ambassador Taylor lauded President Zelensky's rapid reforms, and National Security Council official Morrison testified that during a meeting in Kyiv, they noted that everyone on the Ukrainian side of the table was exhausted because they'd been up all night working on these reforms. On September 11th, President Trump discussed the matter with Vice President Pence, Senator Portman, and Acting Chief of Staff Mulvaney. According to Tim Morrison's testimony, they discussed whether Ukraine's progress on anti-corruption reform was enough to justify releasing the security assistance. Morrison testified that Vice President Pence was obviously armed with the conversation he had with President Zelensky, and they convinced the president that the aid should be dispersed immediately. The president then lifted the hold. In concluding this point, we have considerable evidence that President Trump was skeptical of Ukraine due to its corruption. We have evidence the president was skeptical of foreign assistance in general and that he believes strongly our allies should share the burden for regional defense. We know the White House was reviewing foreign assistance in general to ensure it furthered U.S. interests and that OMB researched and provided information about which foreign countries were contributing money to Ukraine. President Trump told Senator Johnson on August 31st, we're reviewing it now and you'll probably like my final decision. He told Ambassador Sondland on September 9th, I want Zelensky to do what he ran on. President Zelensky, who ran on an anti-corruption platform, was an untried politician with ties to a potential uh, controversial oligarch. Vice President Pence reiterated President Zelensky um, that on September 1st, the need for reform was paramount. After President Zelensky paused I'm sorry, after President Zelensky passed historic anti-corruption reforms, the pause on security assistance was lifted, and the presidents met two weeks later. The Ukrainian government never took any action on investigations at issue in the impeachment inquiry. Much has been made about a so-called shadow or irregular foreign policy apparatus that President Trump is alleged to have orchestrated as a mechanism to force Ukraine to initiate investigations. The allegation is President Trump conspired to recall Ambassador Yovanovitch from Ukraine so his agents could pursue a scheme to pressure Ukraine to conduct these investigations. But there are logical flaws with these arguments. First, every ambassador interviewed in the impeachment inquiry acknowledged the president has an absolute right to recall ambassadors for any reason or no reason. It's apparent that President Trump lost confidence in Ambassador Yovanovitch and it's simply not an abuse of power for him to recall her. Beyond that, 
the Trump administration replaced Ambassador Yovanovitch with Ambassador Bill Taylor, who became one of the first State Department officials to voice concerns discussed during the course of our inquiry here. In fact, Ambassador Taylor played a prominent role in some of the hearings last month. If President Trump truly sought to remove Ambassador Yovanovitch as part of a nefarious plan, he certainly would not have replaced her with someone of the likes of Ambassador Bill Taylor. Second, the three U.S. officials who comprise the so-called shadow foreign policy apparatus, Ambassador Volker, Sondland, and Secretary Perry, can hardly be called irregular and certainly not outlandish. All were senior U.S. officials with official interest in Ukraine policy. The three kept the State Department and the NSC informed of their activities. Finally, there is evidence that Mayor Giuliani did not speak on behalf of the president. According to a news story on November 22nd, Mr. Yarmack asked Ambassador Volker to connect him with Mayor Giuliani because the Zelensky team was surprised by the, by the mayor's negative comments about Ukraine. They wanted to change his mind. Both Ambassador Volker in his deposition and Yarmack in an August New York Times article denied that Mayor Giuliani was speaking on behalf of President Trump as his agent. Instead, as Ambassador Volker explained, the Ukrainian government saw Giuliani as a conduit through which they could change the president's mind. The second allegation at issue, of course, is whether the president obstructed Congress by not agreeing to all the demands for documents and testimony. Uh, as somebody with experience with congressional investigations, and strongly, you know, I strongly believe in Congress's Article I authority, um, but this impeachment inquiry has departed drastically from past bipartisan precedents for presidential impeachment, as well as the fundamental tenets of fair and effective congressional oversight. First, process matters. The bipartisan Rodino-Hyde precedents guaranteed fundamental fairness and due process to the president. It allowed substantive minority participation and participation from the president's counsel in the fact-finding process. Neither aspect was present here. Democrats denied us witnesses. Democrats voted down subpoenas we sought to issue for both documents and testimony. And I'll note Democrats never brought to a committee vote any of the subpoenas that were issued. They were all tabled. Democrats directed witnesses not to answer our questions. And these sorts of actions delegitimize the inquiry and do not give the witnesses or the president confidence that the inquiry is fair. Second, the president or any potential witness to this impeachment inquiry should be allowed to raise defenses without it being used as an adverse inference against him. Courts have held that the Constitution mandates an accommodations process between the branches. For this reason, congressional oversight is a time-intensive endeavor. It certainly takes longer than 76 days. Here, however, the initial letters from the Democrats instructed potential witnesses that if they did not cooperate in full, it shall constitute evidence of obstruction. Democrats wanted all their demands honored immediately and were unwilling to consider the executive branch's privileges or defenses. Finally, there is no basis for obstruction. The one witness who said he spoke to President Trump about his appearance as a witness, Ambassador Sondland, testified the president told him to cooperate and tell the truth. The president has declassified and released the call summary of his July 25th and April 21st calls with President Zelensky. 
White House wrote to Speaker Pelosi to say that it was willing to cooperate further if the House returned to a well-established, bipartisan, constitutional-based impeachment process. As we know, these protections were never afforded. In closing, I'd like to briefly address the Democrats' narrative as articulated in their report. The Democrat narrative virtually ignores any evidence that's not helpful for their case. It ignores, for instance, that Ambassador Sondland's testimony that he presented, um, that there was a quid pro quo, and it ignores the many public statements made by Ukrainian officials. The report presents a story as if the evidence is clear, when in reality, it's anything but. Democrats have gone to great lengths to gather information to build their case, and they've even obtained and released phone records relating to the communications of the president's personal attorney, a reporter, and a member of Congress. There are additional phone records uh, that have not yet been released, and our members remain concerned about the prospect of more phone records being released. There have been a lot of hyperbole, a lot of hysteria over the last three months about this inquiry and the underlying facts. I believe a lot of this can be traced back to the anonymous whistleblower complaint. I believe the whistleblower reframed a lot of the facts at issue and caused witnesses in the inquiry to recast their views. And it's unfortunate that we haven't been able to interview the whistleblower. Finally, some have likened the impeachment inquiry to a special prosecutor's investigation. If one accepts that comparison, one should also ex um, expect that, like Ken Starr and, and, and Robert Mueller, uh, the chairman should testify. And our, our members, all the committees, believe very strongly that Chairman Schiff should, should testify and answer questions. Uh, with that, Mr. Chairman, the time is yours. The gentleman, uh, gentleman's time has expired. We will now proceed to the first round of questions. Point of order. Pursuant, gentleman will state his point of order. We've been told that counsel for the Democrats was a witness, and that's why he didn't have to comport with the rules of decorum. And now he's sitting up here. Gentlemen, will state a point. I've been order. a judge, and I know that you don't get to be a witness and a judge in the same case. That's my point of order. He should not be up here. It's not a point of order. We will, pursuant to House Resolution 660 and its accompanying Judiciary Committee procedures, there will be 45 minutes of questions conducted by the chairman or majority counsel followed by 45 minutes by the ranking member or minority counsel. Only the chair and ranking member and their respective counsels may question witnesses during this period. Following that, unless I specify additional equal time for extended questioning, we will proceed under the five-minute rule, and every member will have the chance to ask questions. I now recognize myself for the first round of questions. The, Republican ex the Republicans' expert witness last week, Professor Turley, wrote in an article that, quote, there is no question that the use of public office for personal gain is an impeachable offense, including the withholding of military aid in exchange for the investigation of a political opponent. You just have to prove it happened, close quote. That was Mr. Turley's comment. Now, Mr. Goldman, did the, inve did the investigative committees conclude that the evidence proved that the president used his public office for personal gain? Yes, Mr. Chairman. And in fact, Finding of fact five said President Trump used, used the power of the office of the president to apply increasing pressure on the president of Ukraine and the Ukrainian government to announce the politically motivated investigations desired by President Trump. And did the evidence also prove that President Trump withheld military aid 
in exchange for an announcement of an investigation of his political opponent? Yes, it did. In fact, finding of fact 5B said, quote, President Trump, acting through his agents and subordinates, conditioned release of the vital military assistance he had suspended to Ukraine on the president of Ukraine's public announcement of the investigations that President Trump sought. And did the evidence demonstrate that President Trump undermined the national security interests of the United States? Yes, in many, in several ways. And finding of fact, six said, in directing and orchestrating this scheme to advance his personal political interests, President Trump did not implement, promote, or advance U.S. anti-corruption policies. In fact, the president sought to pressure and induce the government of Ukraine to announce politically motivated investigations, lacking legitimate predication that the U.S. government otherwise discourages and opposes as a matter of policy in that country and around the world. In so doing, the president undermined U.S. policy supporting anti-corruption reform and the rule of law in Ukraine and undermined U.S. national security. And did the evidence also show that President Trump compromised the national security of the United States? Yes. In fact, finding of fact seven said, by withholding vital military assistance and diplomatic support from a strategic foreign partner government engaged in an ongoing military conflict illegally instigated by Russia, President Trump compromised national security to advance his personal political interests. And did the evidence prove that President Trump engaged in a scheme to cover up his conduct and obstruct congressional investigators? Yes, right from the outset. And in fact, finding of fact nine says, using the power of the office of the president and exercising his authority over the executive branch, President Trump ordered and implemented a campaign to conceal his conduct from the public and frustrate and obstruct the House of Representatives impeachment inquiry. Finally, the constitutional scholars from our hearing last week testified that the president's conduct toward Ukraine and pattern of inviting foreign election interference was a continuing risk to our free and fair elections. Did the evidence prove that President Trump was a threat to our elections? Yes, it did, Mr. Chairman. And in fact, finding of fact eight says, faced with the revelation of his actions, President Trump publicly and repeatedly persisted in urging foreign investments, foreign governments, including Ukraine and China, to investigate his political opponent. This continued solicitation of foreign interference in a U.S. election presents a clear and present danger that the president will continue to use the power of his office for his first political gain, for his personal political gain, close quote, I would add, in the next election. I now yield to my counsel, Mr. Burke, for additional questioning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Castor, as an experienced investigator, would you agree that it's relevant to look at evidence bearing on the president's state of mind that may help explain the president's actions? I think the evidence that we talked about show Use your mic, please. Sir, my only Sorry, question to you is, is, is that a relevant thing to consider? Right, like the call he had with Senator Johnson. Is it, it's relevant to consider. Sir, would you agree that Joe Biden was a leading Democratic contender to face President Trump in 2020? I wouldn't agree with that. You disagree with it. So, sir, it's your testimony it's too early. that President Trump did not view President Biden to be a legitimate contender. I don't know right? what President Trump believed or didn't believe, but it's too early. Sir, as part of your inquiry, did you determine whether President Trump tweeted at all about Vice, former Vice President Joe Biden between January and July 25th, and how many times? 
I didn't, I didn't look at Twitter. I try to stay off Twitter lately. Did you know President Trump tweet, uh, uh, tweeted about former Vice President Joe Biden over 25 times between no. January and uh, July 25th? No, I didn't, I didn't look at those tweets. Did you look at how many times President Trump mentioned Vice President Biden in a speech or rally leading up to the July 25th call? President Trump goes to a lot of rallies. He does a lot of tweeting. I think it's pretty difficult to draw too many conclusions from his tweets or his statements at rallies. Mr. Chairman. Well, sir, Mr. Chairman, parliamentary inquiry. The gentleman is not recognized for parliamentary inquiry. Uh, Mr. Chairman, what is The gentleman it? is not recognized. The gentleman, Mr. Burke, has the time. We're going to ignore the rules we and not allow witnesses to ask the questions. Then gentlemen will how many other rules are you just going to disregard? Gentlemen are su will suspend. Parliamentary inquiries are not in order at this time. Well, how about point a point of, of order. Order. point of order? This is not appropriate to have a Does witness have a point be a questioner a point of, of somebody that was a witness gentlemen, when he was. The gentlemen will suspend. It's just wrong. Mr. Chairman. Gentlemen will refrain Mr. Chairman, from making... Point of inquiry. Will well, I made a point of order, and you won't rule on it. I have not heard a point of order. If the gentleman Mr. has a state Mr. of point, Mr. Chairman, the gentleman point of order. has a point of order. He'll state your point of order. Yes, Mr. Chairman. There is no rule nor precedent for anybody being a witness and then getting to come up and question. And so I have ruled. We would. The point of order is he's inappropriate to be up here asking questions. That is not a point of order. He's here in accordance with Rule Six Six. With how much money do you have to give to get to do? That? Gentlemen will not cast aspersions on members of staff of the committee. Gentlemen, Mr. Chairman, it was a legitimate Mr. Burke, order. Mr. Burke has the time. Mr. Chairman, Mr. point of order. Has, Mr. Is Mr. Burke, Mr. Burke a member of the committee? Mr. Burke has the time. Mr. Mr. Chairman, I have a legitimate Mr. Burke point, of point of order. Mr. Burke has the time. You have to recognize point of point order. Point of order. The gentleman will state a point of order. This gentleman is presenting his opinions as a witness. He's supposed to present the material gentleman facts will state in the a report, point of order. not to appear no. for his opinions. Is that right or not? The gentleman, that is not a point of order. It is Mr. Burke's time pursuant to it's Rule 666. It's It is. I have ruled the, the gentleman has the time pursuant to Rule 660. Point of order. Mr. Chairman. The gentleman will state a point Just of order. Just to help yes, you, that's yes, not the gentleman rule 660. The gentleman will state a point of order if the, he has one. Yes, the point of order is this. Um, we operate by rules. If there's nothing specifically in the rule permitting this, we go by precedent. It is unprecedented for a person to come and sit who you've described as a witness to then return to the bench and begin the questioning. The gentleman has stated, that is a point of order. The gentleman has stated... Uh, that is not a point of order, but I will point out, it's not a cognizable point of order, I will point out that we have, the gentleman has been designated by me to, to do this questioning uh, pursuant to Rule 666, House Resolution 660, which is part of the rules of the House. Is, it, do it, a is in, it is in accordance with the rules of the House, and the gentleman's time will resume. Mr. Burke. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Castor, you were aware that President Trump announced his candidacy for re-election in 2020, and he announced it the month before the July 25th call on June 21st. Okay. Did you find that? Did you look at that in your investigation as part of looking at President Trump's intent and what he intended on the July 25th call? I mean, the date he announced his, I mean, he's obviously running for re-election. What is, what is the date he announced his 
intent to run for re-election matters. And, sir, you knew that President Biden had already announced his intent to run in April of that year, too, correct? I, it's been related to me. I, it wasn't – I don't know when Vice President Biden indicated he was going to – going to run as I sit here today. So you would agree with me that if the Ukraine announced a corruption investigation of former Vice President Joe Biden, that would hurt his credibility as a candidate. Would you agree with that basic principle, sir? Well, nobody. Yes or no, sir. Would you agree with that principle? Well, I slightly disagree with the with the predicate, with, with the premise of your question, because Chairman, we're talking I, about I Hunter Biden. The question that requests opinion evidence. The gentleman is not recognized. The gentleman has the floor. Well, I object to the question. The gentleman Rule on whether the question's in order or the not. The question, the question is in order. The question is in order. The gentleman will continue. Why? The gentleman will continue. It's his time. Let's get back to the fact that we're talking about eight ambiguous lines in a, in a call transcript. Um, you know, the president was not asking for a personal favor. He was speaking on behalf of the American people. He, he said, and I'll read it, I'd like you to find out what happened with the whole situation in Ukraine. They say crowd strike. I guess you have one of your wealthy people. Sir, I'm not asking you to read that. Let me, let me if you want to talk about the transcript, I don't want to talk, I want to talk to you about some of the, you said it's eight lines. Let's look at slide three, if we may, the reference to Biden. Sir, so you see, on the July 25th call on page four, isn't it the fact that President Trump, in his call with President Zelensky, said that he heard that former Vice President Joe Biden had stopped the prosecution of his son? It says the other thing. Uh, there's a lot of talk about Biden's son, that Biden stopped the prosecution. And a so lot that of is correct. He said he stopped the prosecution. Point of order. He's entitled to answer the question fully, Mr. Chairman. The gentleman Have you seen that there's, like a, there's a video of the former VP? I think that's what the president's referring to. He's, he was at the uh, Council on Foreign Relations, and it was a little bit of a, um, uh, you know, the, the former VP was a little bit... Uh, audacious in in how he describes he went over to the I'm Ukraine. only asking you what it says on the transcript is that what it says sir it says the the other thing there's a lot of talk about Biden's son and that Biden stopped the prosecution it says that correct that's what it says here yes and then it also says it goes on to say President Trump asked President Zelensky if you can look into it correct is that that the words if you can look into it correct That's what it says. And then he says, it So President Trump, I write, President Trump was asking Ukrainian President Zelensky to have the Ukrainian officials look into Vice President Joe Biden. Correct? Is that correct? Yes yeah, or no? I, I, don't, I don't think the record supports that. It doesn't say, can you look into it? President Trump is not asking him to I say don't, that? I don't think it supports that. I think it's ambiguous. Mr. Goldman, you're an experienced federal prosecutor. I know that firsthand. Is this President Trump asking President Zelensky to investigate his political rival, Joe Biden? I don't think there's any other way to read the words on the page than to conclude that. And uh, Mr. Castro, Castro, you made the point. Well, let me ask you a question. As an experienced investigator, is it your experience that when someone has done something wrongful or corrupt and they're dealing with somebody who's not in the scheme that they state their intentions to do something wrongful and corrupt. Is that your experience as an investigator? Well, I mean, are you talking about the call transcript? I'm just asking you in general. In general? In general. 
You're saying that a, the schemer yes. would talk about his scheme? Would he generally admit that he was doing something wrongful and corrupt to someone not in the scheme? Uh, no. And you made a big point, sir, in your presentation that on that call, President Trump did not go further and tell President Zelensky that he wanted the investigation announced to help his 2020 election. Well, he, de he definitely did, did you, not did talk you? about 2020. Yeah. And Mr. Goldman, would you agree that if, Mr. if President Trump was acting corruptly, wrongfully, abusing his power, that it was unlikely he was going to confess to President Zelensky that he was asking for the investigation explicitly to help his 2020 election prospects? Yeah, in my experience as 10 years as a prosecutor, uh, you almost never have a defendant or a, uh, someone who's engaging in misconduct who would ever explicitly say, in this case, uh, President Zelensky, I'm going to bribe you now, or I'm going to ask for a bribe, or I am now going to extort you. Um, that's not the way these things work. Thank you, Mr. Goldman. Mr. Castor, getting back to you, you said that um, you said, said about Hunter Biden and talked about it. Hunter Biden had been on the board of Burisma going back to 2014, correct? Yes. President Trump supported Ukraine uh, with, aid, <clears throat> with aid and otherwise in both uh, 2017 and 2018, correct? Yeah, President Trump has done a lot for Ukraine. That's not, yes. And, sir, but isn't it correct that President Trump did not raise anything about Hunter Biden and his father, Vice President Joe Biden, in 2017 or 2018? He only did it the year before his election in 2020 when both he and Vice President Joe Biden were leading candidates. Isn't that true, sir? I think what happened is the president saw this video of the former VP, and I think it, it, it it coalesced in his mind. Sir, please answer my question. He didn't raise any of these issues in 2017 or 2018. I don't know that he, that he did or he didn't. I mean, that is not something that we've looked at. You have no evidence that he did, are you? Did you? No, but I have no evidence he did not. Um, I mean, this video is pretty All right, um, sir, let me, ask you, let me ask you this. You talked about Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, who was a highly decorated Purple Heart recipient and worked in the Trump administration, correct? Yes, sir. He had a reaction to the call, didn't he? He did. He was listening to it, correct? He did. He was. Let's look at his reaction. He said, I immediately went to John Eisenberg, the lead legal counsel. He said, it is improper for the President of the United States to demand a foreign government investigate a U.S. citizen and a political opponent. That was his testimony, correct? Yes or no? That was his testimony. Yes? Yeah, the yes. And let me ask you this, sir. You, you had said that the Intelligence Committee majority report that Mr. Goldman had talked about, you said it presents uh, as if things are clear, but they're not clear. Is that what you said, sir? That's absolutely correct. And you also worked on, you worked personally, you said worked on the minority report, correct? Yep. Yes, sir. Was it important to you to be accurate in the minority report that you worked on? Was yes. it important to be fair to witnesses to be accurate about what they said? Course. Was it important to be fair to the American people of course. to accurately report what people said? Of course. Well, let me ask you about somebody else on that call. Let me ask you about Jennifer Williams. Now, she was a special advisor to Vice, to, uh, Vice President Pence on Europe and Russia affairs. Is that correct? Yes. She worked for Vice President Pence, correct? Correct. And you said in your opening statement that these accusations that President Trump was trying to do something for a political purpose, that that was made by people who were pre, had predetermined motives for impeachment. Is that correct? That's some of them, I, but I also indicated that some of these, the witnesses in the impeachment inquiry, I think have 
revised their views after after the the call transcript came out and the whistleblower complaint was released. Are you calling Vice President Pence's special advisor a liar, sir? No, I didn't say that. Are you calling? Are you saying she was predetermined to impeach? Um, I, I didn't say that. Uh, well, but, well, you know what the, the question about Jennifer Williams is interesting. Is I, never, I didn't ask you, sir. She she never uh, mentioned anything to her supervisor. She never mentioned anything to anybody in the vice president's office en route to Warsaw when the vice president was going to meet with President Zelensky. Um, she didn't even raise it as a potential issue that might, you know, catch the vice president off guard. Well, Mr. So her concern that she articulated during the course of the deposition and during the course of the hearing was incongruent, incongruent with the, with the facts and what she did during times relevant. Mr. Castro, let's look at your report, what you wrote in the report about Ms. Williams. So if we could put up slide six, please. Same point that you tried to make to, to discount her testimony. You said she testified that although she found the call to be unusual, she did not, um, she did not raise concerns to her supervisor. Right. right. No, nobody so, in America knew about Jennifer Williams's concerns until she walked in the door for her deposition. Sir, sir when you said that although mm -hmm. she found the call to be unusual, that wasn't accurate. That's not what she said about the call. She didn't say it was just unusual, did she? She said it was unusual. That's not all she said about it, was it? Okay, I mean, she, she, that was, she that was here for nine hours in the bunker, so she said a lot about the call. So that was you in the minority? Mr. Chairman, can we get a copy of the slide deck? We can't see. I just want the to see. The gentleman will suspend. The gentleman has the time. But we can't see the stuff. Can we uh, just get it a copy? The gentleman has the time. Uh, I'm happy to read it. Uh, Jennifer Williams testified that, quote, although she found the call to be unusual, Quote, she did not, end of quote, she did not raise concerns to her supervisor. Isn't it a fact, sir, that Ms. Williams said a lot more than that? Mr. If we Chairman, I have a point of order. The gentleman will state his point of order. The point of order clock. is the gentleman from Florida has complained that he can't see what the questioner is relying on and would like to see it. And that is not a, point, a cognizable point of order, and it was read to him. Gentlemen will proceed. Only half of it was read to him. Irrelevant. Now let's slow down a bit here. Gentlemen, the let's slow down a bit here so that members are able to fully see what is being put in in support of what you're trying to do. We can't do that uh, without being able to see it or read it. Mr. Gates has said that. Now let's slow down so that we can see or hear uh, what he is referring to. And you're not letting that happen. And that goes to the privileges of the members Mr. Chairman, that you are asking to get in on this meeting will and to vote. The gentleman will suspend. The, uh, Mr. Chairman, I can see now. I appreciate the accommodation. It's the, well, the, the, the monitor was turned. Now we can see. Okay. Thank you. The gentleman will resume. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So in the, here it says that you said Ms. Williams said that she found it to be, quote, unusual and nothing more. Let's look at slide it seven, if we may. More. Let's look at it says unusual, correct? Isn't right, it but fact? it doesn't say and nothing more. No, it says unusual. Isn't it a fact, sir, that what Ms. Williams says is she struck her as unusual and inappropriate? Isn't that correct, sir? Okay. That's what she said in her testimony. Okay. And in your staff report, you left out the inappropriate part. It didn't wasn't you? a block quote. It was she. She felt it was unusual. She didn't raise the concerns. Did Lieutenant General Kellogg? So, sir, let me ask you: Were you as fair? 
to the American people in describing what Ms. Williams said as you were in describing any, everything else in your report? I, I, I don't have an issue with the way we described Ms. Williams' testimony. Well, let's look at what else Ms. Williams said. Can we put up slide eight? This is from Ms. Williams' uh, public testimony at 34. She said, I, quote, I thought that the references to specific individuals and in investigations such as former Vice President Biden and his son struck me as political in nature, given that former Vice President is a political opponent of the President. So you left that out of your staff report too, didn't you? You know, Ms. Williams. Sir, did you leave that out of your report, yes or no? I, I, if, you, if you're telling me I did, I mean, I don't, I don't know as I sit here right now whether that's in the I'm report. I'm telling you, you did. Okay. Sir, where you said, you said Ms. Williams said that the call was unusual when she fact, she said it was unusual and inappropriate and of a political nature because it raised Vice President, uh, the Vice President who she recognized was a political opponent of the President. Her, her views of the call differ remarkably from Mr. Morrison, also from Lieutenant General Keller. That's not my question. My question is why did you misquote Ms. Williams in terms of what she said? Her. Why did you do it? We certainly didn't misquote her. So you stand, so from the standard that you apply to your fact-finding in your report, you believe that it was entirely proper to say that Ms. Williams found the call to be unusual, when in fact she found the call to be unusual and inappropriate and of a political nature given that the former vice president is a political opponent of the president. Is that your testimony, sir? I mean, we described what Ms. Williams said. Sorry, is that your testimony? No, you didn't. Mr. Chairman. If either you can ask, the you can answer. Mr. Chairman, I'm not. He can either ask or answer. He can't do both. Mayor, you can ask or answer. You can't do both. Gentleman is not recognized. The chairman, the has the chairman, I make a point of order that he's badgering the witness. He is not. The gentleman will continue. And sir, you 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 invoked, sir, you invoked, Mr. Mr. Moore. Chairman, can you rule on my point of order that he's badgering the witness because he's doing that? Sir, you, you, you invoke it is Mr. Not, that is not a cognizable motion. It does not call for a ruling, and the time belongs to the gentleman. A point so of you, order of the committee is not an order, and the chairman is not an order. That is not a point of order. The committee is in order. The, well, would you rule on my original point of order? You, the original point of order was not cognizable and does not necessitate that a the, ruling. That the chairman, lawyer is badgering the witness? The we have to have some Chairman decorum in here, and you have your rules of decorum, which aren't comporting with everybody else's rules. Of I will decorum. say that sharp cross-examination of a witness is not badgering the witness. The gentleman will continue. Wait, Mr. Chairman, it is if it's the witness. No one. The gentleman has the time. Mr. Chairman, point of order. General will state a point of order. Under uh, Resolution 660. We're supposed to follow the federal rules of evidence. Is that right? No. What is it? What is it? No, it is not correct. What are the rules? What are the objections that we're able it's to not make? A, that is not a point of order. The it is a point of order. There's no rules. It is not a point of order. The gentleman will continue. Where's the list of rules? The gentleman will continue. Thank are we you, thank to you Mr. Chairman. Anything, then? The gentleman will continue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Mr. Castor, you just invoked Tim Morrison. Hmm? He was someone on the call too, correct? Yep. Um, and. Let me put up slide nine of Mr. Morrison's testimony on page 38 of his public testimony. And Mr. Morrison said, well, the question was, question by Mr. Goldman. 
You heard the call. You recognized that President Trump was not discussing the talking points that the NSC had prepared based on official U.S. policy and was instead talking about the investigations that Fiona Hill had warned you about. And then you reported it immediately to the NSC legal advisor. Is that the correct claim of events here? And Mr. Morrison said, that's correct. Before I ask you, Mr. Castor, let me ask you, Mr. Goldman, earlier, before your presentation, we showed the testimony of Ms. Hill, where she referred to what President Trump was trying to do as running a domestic political errand. Is that what you understand? Is that what you intended to ask Mr. Morrison about in your question to him? Yes, it was about these two specific investigations that President Trump ultimately did discuss and ask President Zelensky to do. Uh, these are the same two investigations that uh, were discussed and were the only two investigations that were at issue throughout the entirety of the scheme. And so what our evidence found was that any time there was a reference to investigations, it referenced the Biden investigation and the 2016 election investigation. And in fact, Ambassador Volcker actually said that whenever he was saying, using the term corruption, what he meant was those specific two investigations. And what was the significance to you that Mr. Morrison who Mr. Castor himself has relied on and invoked twice today, where he said that he understood these were the investigations that Fiona Hill had warned him about, warned him about. What did you understand that to mean? When um, Dr. Hill left and Tim Morrison replaced her, they had um, transition meetings. And during one of those transition meetings, Dr. Hill told Tim Morrison about a, what she believed to be this irregular channel that Ambassador Sondland was operating where they were pushing for Ukraine to do these investigations. And Dr. Hill in particular was very concerned because as she said, as you pointed out, that was a domestic political errand and what she was working on and the National Security Council was working on related to na national security and foreign policy. And those were two entirely separate things. And was she expressing the view that President Trump had chose his own personal political interests over the foreign policy uh, positions that Ms. Hill was trying to pursue? At the time that she said that to Tim Morrison, she was not aware of whether uh, President Trump had actually endorsed these investigations, but she did testify that after she read the call transcript, which she only read after it was released like the rest of us, she said that she put two and two together and realized that that is exactly what he was talking about. And what was two and two again? Uh, it equals four. And what is four in this investigation, sir? Well, it was used by two witnesses, Ambassador Sondland and David Holmes, uh, as the only logical conclusion to explain why the security assistance had been withheld, was being withheld from Ukraine. And based on all of the various factors and their direct involvement in issues related to Ukraine, they concluded that the security assistance was being withheld to put pressure and as a condition on the initiation of the two investigations that are referenced here. Yep. Right, turning to you, Mr. I got to clear a couple things up here. I got to clear a couple things up here, if I may. First of all, Morrison was concerned. Morrison didn't think the call. Sir, was you have no. There's no question. The gentleman has the time, not the witness. I mean, sir, let me. Morrison was concerned about leaks. Sir, let me ask you, sir. Sir, you said. I, by the way, Vol you, Volker sir, never meant. The gentleman has the time. The clock will stop if he's interrupted. Thank Will this witness you. be able to cross-examine Mr. Burke like he's being able to cross-examine the opposing witness? It's a point of inquiry. Will 
not shout out in the middle of testimony. You need to call balls and strikes the right way. He, you don't interrupt either one of them, Mr. Chairman. You're, you're, you're the questioner or the witness. Bang it harder. It still doesn't make the point the that you're not doing it right. The gentleman will continue. Sir, I believe it was your testimony as I wrote it down. The Democrats are about blocking info when they should be seeking information. Oh, my goodness. That is absolutely right. Okay. And then you said that the Trump administration has, in fact, cooperated and facilitated congressional oversight investigations. Is that correct, sir? Am I just yes or no? Is that correct? Absolutely. The Trump administration has participated in oversight during the entire Congress until it got to this impeachment inquiry. So, so let me ask you about this call, sir. Robert Blair. the terms are just not fair. Robert Blair, who was on this call, yeah. the Trump administration, the president himself directed him not to appear and give testimony. Robert correct? Blair, let's, I'm glad you No, I'm asking you, did the president direct him not to appear and give testimony? Yes or no? I think he was allowed to come if agency counsel. He was not allowed to come under the terms set by the House Intelligence Committee, correct? I think he would have come with agency counsel. The Trump administration directed him not to come, correct? He would have provided testimony, I think, if, if agency counsel could have come. I mean, it's really there, expensive to hire these outside lawyers. John Eisenberg was directed not to come, correct? The lawyer. Eisenberg presents another set of But he was, he was directed not to come. The lawyer who Lieutenant Colonel Vinman went to, correct? Okay. Eisenberg is a... Um, he may have been able to come with agency counsel, but he presents some complexities. I mean, he's the chief legal advisor for Ambassador Bolton. So he was directed not to come, correct? Um, he, he may have been able to come with, with agency counsel, but his testimony does present complexities. Sir, let me ask you this. Was it U.S. policy on July 26th to request that Ukraine investigate former Vice President Joe Biden? Um, you know, I... I think you're reading a little too much into, you know, some of the eight lines. I don't think the president was requesting an investigation into into Joe Biden. He just mentions an offhand comment. Um, Sir, is that a no? It was not U.S. policy to look into Joe Biden. Yeah, but you're 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 presuming that it then at some point became U.S. policy to investigate Joe Biden, and I don't think that's the case. Sir. Let me show you what slide 10 testimony of all, again, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. And he was asked, are you aware of any written product from the National Security Council suggesting that investigations in the 2020 election, the Bidens or Burisma, are part of the official policy of the United States? No, I'm not. Now let me go also to Tim Morrison, who you invoked. If we could go to slide 11. Morrison was asked by our own uh, Congressman Swalwell, who was also on the Intelligence Committee, and said, just to, going to pick up in the middle of that long question, it said, you listened to the, the one call that you listened to between the President of the United States and the President of Ukraine, the President of the United States' prior, priorities were to investigate the Bidens. And I'm asking you, sir, why didn't you follow up on the President's priorities when you talked to the Ukraine, Ukrainians? Mr. Morrison said, sir, I did not understand it as a policy objective. Mr. Goldman, let me ask you, there was uh, a package prepared before that call of what President Trump was uh, supposed to talk about with, the, with President Zelensky, correct? Yes. And am I correct, sir, that one of the things that he was supposed to talk about and was in his prepared remarks was the anti-corruption platform of President Zelensky that he ran and won on, correct? Yes, the witnesses testified that that is a consistent and persistent um, policy objective for the United States. Did President Trump mention corruption once in his call with, President, with Mr. Zelensky? 
No, he did not. Did he mention looking into anything other than the two investigations that were politically helpful to him, the 2016 election investigation and the investigation of his political rival, former Vice President Joe Biden? No, he did not. May I Mr. Castor, add something there? No, you can't. Mr. Castor, let me ask you a question. Trump you did yes. mention, Are you going to let him answer? He did mention no. that there's some very bad no, people there. Can yell. The, gentleman, let him answer. the gentleman said, the time is the questioners, and he can ask the questions whoever he wants. And, and, when you question, you'll have the same rules. And Mr. Castor, in fairness, you'll be, at, you'll be able to answer questions asked by minority counsel when it's their turn. Okay, but, I have 45 minutes, so let, fairness, me ask, let me ask you. Come on, Barry. In fairness here, he, President Trump talks about very bad people. Mr. Mr. Castor, if I can finish, and that was, let me finish, sir. It's, let, me, let me ask you this, sir. Sir, there were two lawyers mentioned on the call. Mr. We've heard testimony, we've heard testimony already. Mr. Trump said to President, President Trump said to President Zelensky that he should speak to two people. His personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and the Attorney General Barr, correct? Yep. Okay. Immediately after this call memorandum was released, isn't it the case that Attorney General Barr and the Department of, Ju uh, of Justice issued a statement about his role in all this? He did. Let's put up the statement. Slide 13, please. President has not spoken with the Attorney General about having Ukraine investigate anything relating to former Vice President Biden or his son. The President has not asked the Attorney General to contact Ukraine on this or any other matter. The Attorney General has not communicated with Ukraine on this or any other subject. So, Mr. Goldman, is it fair to say that the Attorney General didn't want anything to do with these investigations that President Trump had raised with uh, President Zelensky on the call? I, I think it goes actually even a little further. I think it, it the attorney, whether the Attorney General wanted anything to do or not is um, in addition to the fact that the Attorney General said he had nothing to do with Ukraine and in fact that there were no ongoing investigations at the time of this call or in August. And that became, a, 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 became an issue in the investigation. There is a formal channel that the Department of Justice has and the United States government has to obtain evidence related to an ongoing investigation. And that is generally the proper way to engage a foreign country through treaties to get in information. Uh, but several of the witnesses testified that they looked into that at the urging of the Ukrainians, and they determined that there was no formal ongoing investigation nor any formal request on these topics. Now, the, the other lawyer on the call, Rudy Giuliani, he, however, he was more than happy to continue to be involved in trying to get Ukraine to investigate President Trump's political rival, Joe Biden, correct? Mr. Giuliani was um, very active and involved in pushing for these investigations for several months before the July 25th call and then for a couple, several months after, including apparently three days ago. And, and sir, Mr. Castro, you would agree you wrote in your report that Rudy Giuliani, that the Ukrainians themselves knew that Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer, was a conduit to convince President Trump of uh, that President Zelensky was a serious reformer, correct? Well, Ukrainians knew that... Uh, Sorry, that isn't that what you said in your report? Rudy had the president's ear. And he was a conduit. Let me put up uh, slide 14, if I may, and we actually have your report here. And it says the Ukrainians 
knew that he, meaning Rudy Giuliani, was a conduit to convince President Trump that President Zelensky was serious about reform. Isn't that what you wrote in your yeah. report, sir? Okay. And, and in fact, during the call, President Trump asked President Zelensky to speak directly to his personal lawyer about Ukrainian matters that President Trump was interested in, correct? You referred him to Rudy, yeah. Yes. And in fact, President Zelensky said, oh, we already knew that, and he's been in touch with my aides, correct? That's right. In fact, I mean, the Ukrainians are the ones that first, President Zelensky is the one who first brings up Mr. Giuliani on the call. Right, because they knew that Mr. Giuliani was a conduit to the president, and if they made Mr. Giuliani happy, they'd make the President Trump yeah, and, happy. Uh, Ambassador Volker testified, though, that Mr. Giuliani had a negative uh, impression of Ukraine and that he was possibly fueling um, the president's views. And so they had, uh, there were some discussions about, hey, if you can convince Rudy that President Zelensky is a true reformer, the real deal, that that would be a beneficial, um, a beneficial link. Well, sir, you agree that President Giuliani, before July 20, the July 25th call and after, was pushing for the Ukrainians to investigate Vice, former Vice President Joe Biden. Isn't that correct? Yes um, or no? Yeah, I mean, the record is somewhat spotty with Giuliani. I mean, I know the New York Times reported in May, but Ambassador Volker gave a pretty detailed account of his meeting on July 19th. Well, let's, let's take and a look. If we could put up slide 16, the New York Times article you referred to. Right, and the article says, I'll read it, Mr. Giuliani, and this is dated May 9th, 2019, before the call, Mr. Giuliani said he plans to travel to Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, in the coming days and wants to meet with the nation's president-elect to urge him to pursue inquiries that, and then it continues, that allies of the White House contend could yield new information about two matters of intense interest to Mr. Trump. One is the origin of the special counsel's investigation, goes on to describe it, New sentence. The other is the involvement of former Vice President Joe Biden's son. Okay. And now, that was in the New York Times article. And Can we talk about we, the breakfast with Volcker? If we could, if we could, not yet. If we could continue the rest of the article to the next slide, which is uh, slide 17. This is the same article. And Mr. Giuliani was very explicit when he was interviewed. He said, and this isn't foreign policy. I'm now quoting the words that are highlighted. It says, it'll be very, very helpful to my client. My only client is the President of the United States. He's the one I have an obligation to report to, to him what happened regarding the Ukraine. Now, sir, were you aware on that same day Mr. Giuliani gave an interview about what he intended to do? And let's go to slide 18. This is from Real, Real, uh, Real Clear Politics, and it should be on the screen in front of you as well. And what, he, what Mr. Giuliani said about the Ukraine he said, it's a big story, it's a dramatic story, and I guarantee you, Joe Biden will not get to election day without this being investigated. Not because I want to see him investigated, the collateral to what I was doing. So, sorry, and you agree, election day refers to the 2020 election where President Trump will be running against, will be running for re-election, correct? I don't know what Julian is talking about, but I guess you're right. The, okay, well, the, me, um, so that was my only question to you. You'll have a chance to answer questions to the Minority Council. Um, now, and President Trump, let me show you seven, uh, slide We're, we're going to sidestep the Volcker meeting on July 19th? Sir, you'll have an opportunity to talk about that when, when Minority Council okay. questions you. Let me go to slide 19, please. And the President says he's being interviewed now the same day in a Politico 
and he's asked about Mr. Giuliani. He's leaving soon, I think in the next couple days. Mr. Trump says, I see. Well, I will speak to him about it before he leaves. Now, let me go to slide 20, because President, excuse me, Mr. Giuliani continued his pressure on President Zelensky. In this one, it's actually a tweet that he put out um, on June 21st, uh, 2019, roughly a month before the call, he says, new president of Ukraine, still silent on investigation of Ukrainian interference in 2016 election and alleged Biden bribery of the prior president. And again, sir, as you said, the Ukrainians knew that Mr. Giuliani had the ear of his client, President Trump. Isn't that correct, sir? Is that correct, sir? Yes or no? The you know, Giuliani was doing some things in, you know, out here, and then he became involved with the official channel, with Volker, with Sondland. And at that meeting on July 19th, Volker, you know, counseled against the perspective Giuliani was taking. So my question to you, sir, is this tweet, what they're talking about, well, let me ask you, Mr. Goldman, you haven't had a chance at all. This tweet, is that referring to a personal political issue of President Trump or official U.S. policy? That's a, that's a personal political issue. And if, if you don't mind, I'll just take a moment to respond to Mr. Castor because Please do. on that July 19th meeting between Ambassador Volker and Rudy Giuliani, Ambassador Volker told Mr. Giuliani that the allegations about Joe Biden were completely uh, bogus and wrong. And Mr. Giuliani actually told, according to Ambassador Volker's testimony, Mr. Giuliani said that he knew that. And yet, for the next two months, he continued to push for that same investigation at the direction of President Trump, who had also directed President Zelensky to contact Mr. Giuliani. So that, that July 19th meeting that Mr. Castor brought up is actually quite important to this investigation. And, sir, you, you already explained that on May 23rd, when the official folks who went to the inauguration of President Zelensky came back to tell the president how impressed they were, the only thing he had to say to them was talk to Rudy. He was taking his official government people responsible for Ukraine and handing them over to Rudy Giuliani so that they could work with him for the issues that he was focused on for the president as evidence in the tweet. Is that fair? I agree with Mr. Castor. I think that's, that's what the evidence shows, that at that May 23rd meeting, President Trump directed and delegated authority over Ukraine matters to Ambassador Sondland, Volker, and Secretary Perry, and told them to work with Rudy. And then over the next three months, that's exactly what happened at the president's direction. Okay. And in fact, let me show you uh, what is slide uh, 22, if I may, that you understood the Ukrainians recognized how important Rudy Giuliani was and satisfying him in order to stay on good terms with President Trump? Yes. they they quickly realized it, I think, from their own um, internal conversations, because Mr. Giuliani had back channels to getting to, um, to the Ukrainian officials. And um, Ambassador Volker told the Ukrainians as well um, that there was this, quote, Giuliani factor that President Zelensky, he actually told it to President Zelensky, that there was this Giuliani factor that uh, they needed to deal with with the president. And in fact, this is the senior aide to President Zelensky saying to Ambassador Volker on August 13th, which is obviously after the July 25th call, thank you for meeting in your clear and very logical position. It will be great meet with you before my departure and discuss. I feel that the key for many things is Rudy, and I'm ready to talk to him with him at any point. Please let me know when you can meet. 
Audrey. And again, that's Rudy, the, the, am I right, that's the Ukrainians recognize that Rudy Giuliani, who's demanding the investigation of Mr. Trump's political rival, was key to getting yeah, anything done. Correct? I don't mean to be a stickler, but I believe this text was actually July 10th. Um, and this was a critical text uh, because what it is saying is Mr. Yermak, after having spoken to Mr. Volcker a week before and learning about the importance of Giuliani, requested to Ambassador Volcker to meet, to set up a meeting with Mr. Giuliani. That then proceeded to this July 19th breakfast that Mr. Castor said, and then a July 22nd phone call, and then ultimately they met in Madrid on August 2nd. Thank you, Mr. Goldman. Further evidence of the meticulous investigation that uh, Chairman Schiff and his staff with you directed. Uh, we will stand corrected. Thank you. And I will take that and ask that the record reflect that, that that is the correct date. In either, either case, Rudy was key whenever it was said, correct? Certainly. And now let me ask, sir, let me put up slide 24. And Mr. Goldman, am I correct that there came a point in time when President Trump, through his chief of staff, Mr. Mavol, uh, Mick Mulvaney, ordered that the approved military aid to Ukraine be withheld, as you previously indicated, correct? Yes. And this is the testimony of the people who were involved. Mr. Kent said when this happened, there was great confusion among the rest of us because we didn't understand why that had happened since there was unanimity that this aid was in our national interest. It just surprised us all. Mr. Holmes, and then you had the additional hold of the security assistance with no explanation whatsoever, and we still have an explanation, and we still have, don't have an explanation for why that happened or in the way that happened. Ms. Croft. The only reason given was that the order came at the direction of the president. So, sir, let me ask you a question. Did all the agencies involved believe that the aid should be given? Yes, it was the unanimous view of all of the agencies, Secretary of State, uh, Department of State, Department of Defense, National Security Council, literally every one of the interagency um, uh, agencies um, that, that believed that the aid was vital and had already been approved and should be released immediately. And um, in the minority staff report and in Mr. Castor's testimony earlier, he said the U.S. government did not convey the pause to the Ukrainians. Well, that wasn't correct, was it? Didn't Mr. Sondland uh, convey that, according to Mr. Sondland's affidavit and testimony? Mr. Sondland ultimately conveyed that the um, release of the aid was conditioned on the annou public announcement of the investigations. And if we could put up slide 26 from the affidavit. that, though, is what he said. Well, if, if I may, just in response we'll, we'll to put, We'll put up the slide. Sure. We could put up the actual affidavit that Mr. Ambassador Sondland, the President Trump's ambassador to the European Union, that he swore to under penalties of perjury. And he says, if we read the highlighted, which is also in front of you, I now recall speaking individually with Mr. Yermak, where I said that, where I said to Mr. Yermak, the Ukrainian aid, that, going back to the quote, that resumption of U.S. aid would likely not occur until Ukraine provided the public anti-corruption statement that we have been discussing for many weeks. Is that correct, sir? Yes, he said that on, on, uh, at a meeting on September 1st with Mr. Yermak in Warsaw. And the statement that they had been talking about, let me put up a slide that we put together, slide 27. And you recall, sir, that in the draft statement,
that the Ukrainians were going to have President Zelensky give so they could, and was that statement on their mind so they could get a White House meeting and satisfy President Trump and have the aid released? Yes, Ambassador Sondland testified to that, and Ambassador Volker also testified to that. And am I correct that Mr. Yermak gave a statement where he did not make any reference to Vice President Biden, correct? Correct. And then was that Rudy Giuliani who said in the second one that it had to include a reference that they were going to investigate Burisma in the 2016 election? That's right. And what did Burisma stand for? That was, was that, did you, did all your witnesses say they had an understanding of what that meant? Or did the witnesses say that? So every single witness said after reading the phone call on July 25th that it was clear Burisma equaled Biden, that they were one and the same. Um, there were only two witnesses who said that they did not know that until that time. And there was ample testimony. There was a lot of testimony from people involved in all aspects of Ukraine policy. Uh, who indicated that it was completely unrealistic and unlikely that anyone who had anything to do with Ukraine did not, would not know that the Burisma investigation related to the Bidens. And is that why, and that's how Mr. Giuliani publicly referred to it often as Burisma and Vice President Biden, correct? Correct, yes. And did the Ukrainians complain repeatedly, we talked a little bit about it, that they didn't want to be a pawn in U.S. democratic politics by helping President Trump's re-election campaign by making such a statement? They, they said that in, in July and in August, ultimately, they didn't give the statement in large part because they had reservations, given that President Zelensky was an anti-corruption reformer, they had reservations about engaging in U.S. domestic politics. That's right. I want to go back to you, Mr. Castor. You said that when President Trump said to Mr. Son Ambassador Sondland on September 17th that he had no quid pro quo, you said he had no September reason. 9th. You September said 9th. September 9th. You said he had no reason to be any less than candid. That's what you said. No reason to be any less than candid. Let me show you, sir, what happened, though, on September let me show you slide 52. Days before he made that statement, the Washington Post printed a, an article that says, Trump tries to force Ukraine to meddle in the 2020 elections, and goes on to describe some of those efforts. And, sir, let me show you whether President Trump was aware of that article before he volunteered no quid pro quo as a defense. Let me show you a tweet by President Trump on slide 53. Now, and again, this is, he is putting out a tweet that is essentially saying the Democrats, based on following up the article, that they are pursuing uh, impeachment. Um, again, showing awareness that this has now been reported on. So, Mr. Goldman, is it fair to say what Mr. Castor said, that Mr. Trump, President Trump had no reason to be any less than candid about saying no quid pro quo? No, no I think uh, President Trump had uh, every reason to try to put out that message at that point. As Ambassador Sondland said, even when he, even if you credit Ambassador Sondland's version of the testimony, which is contradicted by other witnesses who took contemporaneous notes and are, were far more credible than Mr. Sondland, who had to amend his testimony a couple times. He said even in that comment, he said no quid pro quo out of the blue without, without any uh, question about whether or not there was a quid pro quo. Gentlemen's time has expired. Uh, the chair now recognizes the ranking member for his first round of questions. Pursuant to House Resolution 660, the ranking member or his counsel have 45 minutes to question the witnesses. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, it's, it's become very evident why this hearing is here and why the, uh, the craziness of this hearing, especially not having Mr. Schiff here. But please put back up the last slide. I have no idea what number it is. Not as good a counsel as Harper. 53. Did we cut it off after they got through? It was 11 seconds. Okay, well, while we're doing this, I mean, I think it's just the most amazing statement came out there. We're, we're proofing the tweet that said that he thought that he was the Democrats were concerned about impeachment. There's nothing the Democrats have not been concerned about for two and a half years. Since August, I mean, since November 2016, the president is saying nothing new in that tweet. There's now back up. He's known that they have been after impeachment. That's why Mr. Goldman is here. That's why Mr. Burke is here. That's why we're going through this charade of staff having to answer staff questions. And basically, when we don't like how it's going, we start asking staff on staff and getting into a staff argument. Where's Adam? Where's Adam? It's his report, his name. Mr. Goldman, you're a great attorney, but you're not Adam Schiff, and you don't wear a pen. That's true. We got a problem here. And the problem is developing this. You said you were an attorney. You're a very good prosecutor. I believe it. I've read your bio. You're a good attorney. You understand what quid pro quo is, correct? I do. You understand what asking for something in exchange for something actually means, correct? I do. You know about the conversation of Mr. Biden when he asked and he said, I'm not going to give you the billion dollars. You know about that conversation, correct? The, you, you want me to read it to you or do you know it? One second. Are you talking about in 2015? No, I'm talking about the one from the national... Uh, where he did the, I'll read it to you since you're having trouble. As I remember going over to the Ukraine, convincing our team, our leaders convincing them that we should provide for loan guarantees. As I went over, I guess the 12th or 13th time to give, I was supposed to announce that there was a billion dollar loan guarantee. And I got a commitment from Poroshenko and they said that I would take action against, that they would take action against the state prosecutor. They didn't. So they, so they said they had, they were walking out to the press conference. I said, nah, I'm not going to or we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have authority, you have no authority, you're not the president. The president said, I said, call him, laughter. I said, I'm telling you, you're, getting, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion dollars. I'm getting, I'm, getting, uh, I'm getting ready to be leaving here, and I think about six hours, I looked at them and said, I'm leaving here in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. Well, son of a bitch, he got fired. Did he ask for something, request something, and hold something of value? He did. George Kent testified that that I was... I think I'll do what you did. George Kent testified this. I'm asking about not George Kent. I'm asking about this question. Right, but it, it's important context. It's not. Answer this question. Did he or did he not? He's a, either Joe Biden's a liar, telling a story to make people impressed, or he actually did this. Which is it? He did it pursuant to U.S. official policy. So he did it in holding, withholding actual dollars, actual thing, holding this out there. So Joe Biden of everybody that we discussed about is the only one that's done a quid pro quo. He's the only one that's used taxpayer dollars to actually threaten a foreign government. And yet we're sitting here pretending that this is not happening? We're sitting here pretending that a president of the United States now would not be concerned? Look, you look at it this way. Joe Biden's a terrible candidate. He can destroy himself on the campaign trail, but he can't get by this. And it doesn't matter who brings it up. It doesn't matter who does it, because this is what happened. And you can whitewash it all you want, you can go over whatever you want, but that's what he did. He's either a liar or he did it, and he did it. I want to continue on. Question is a question that you had earlier. You rely on how many, approximately how many times do you rely on Gordon Sondland's testimony in your report? Oh, I, I, it's a nearly a 300-page report. Would I you be amazed if it was 600 times or better? 
I, I, you wouldn't I, have any idea or not? I have no idea. Okay. You did. It's over 600 times. Would you also understand if you do a simple check of your report that over 158 times Mr. Sondland said, instead of knowing, not knowing something, to the best of my knowledge, or I don't know? Would that surprise you? Are you talking about the report or his deposition? The, the deposition and the closed-door testimony. Yes, and over time he remembered a lot more as he was refreshed by other yeah, people's testimony. It is. The question we're having here, though, is Mr. Sondland also said, and many times he said he presumed what actually happened. Let's go back to something else. We're going to continue this in just a moment. According to your report, HIPSI, and we'll classify that and we'll determine that to be the Intelligence Committee and the other investigation with the other two committees. We okay with that? Certainly. Okay. Issued dozens of subpoenas, is that right? Uh, I'm not, uh, certainly over a dozen, yes. Some of the subpoenas were not publicly reported until the HIPSI issued its majority report, correct? Uh, most of the subpoenas were Answer not the question publicly. is Mr. Burke had so much free reign, let's go at it. Either answer the question or elaborate, one or the other. Sir, I'm trying to answer the question. Uh, did you or didn't you? Is, did it come out or not? Did what come out? I'll read it again. Some of the subpoenas were not publicly reported until the HIPSI issued its majority report, correct? Yes, they were given to the minority, but not pub the public. Yes. Putting aside the witnesses who have publicly been identified, did you issue any other subpoenas for testimony other than the ones publicly identified? I, I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think okay. so, Thank you. but I'm not sure. How many subpoenas were issued for records? Well, we issued an, uh, a number of subpoenas for records. We, we did issue six subpoenas to um, executive branch agencies and they all defied our subpoenas. In this, moving on to other uh, issues here, the Wall Street Journal reported that the committee issued at least four subpoenas to Verizon and AT&T for call records. Is that correct? Um, we... Are we wondering? Yeah, yes, we are because um, there are multiple numbers um, it's, we, we only issued subpoenas for call records for people who were involved in the investigation and who had already been subpoenaed by the committee for documents and testimony of their own. Absolutely wonderful uh, uh, stuff, but answer my question. Four? Well, I am trying to answer your question. Was it at least four? Yes. Thank you. Could have saved us a lot of time there. How many subpoenas were issued at and I don't know off the top Can of my head. Can you check your records? This is important because we just found out about this over the weekend. We got a massive document dump over the weekend preparing for this hearing in which the chairman admitted and the staff admitted they're not going to be able to read it all anyway. So for all of you writing reports about this, all that massive document dump, we're just simply going on a Schiff report which Schiff refuses to come testify about but sends his staff. So this is important stuff. We just found out about this. So how many subpoenas were issued to AT&T? I don't know. If you'd like me to find That's out fine. the break, you don't know, I'd be happy then, to. Then, again, maybe your chairman could be here to actually answer this. Was it targeted at a single telephone number or numbers? We, we subpoenaed for call records multiple numbers. How many? I, I don't know. None, none of, uh, this okay, is very important though. None of members of Congress, none of staff of Congress. Oh, we're getting to that. None of journalists. We're getting to that. We only did it to the subjects who were involved in the investigation, which is a very routine and standard investigative and, practice. And sir. you're not going to hear anything from me about a subpoena and the legality of a subpoena. My problem is this. Who asked? Who on the committee asked that those numbers that you actually did put into the run into for a subpoena and get those numbers back? Who was it that asked that they be cross-checked for members of the media and, and members of the Congress? Who ordered that? 
I don't think that's how we did it, sir. No, whoa, whoa, whoa. You came out with a report that actually showed these people, such as Mr. Chairman Nunez and others, were actually on these calls. Yes. Now, someone, and you and I, we're not going to play cute here. Somebody took the four records that you asked for, or at least four, took those numbers and then said, hey, let's play uh, match game. Who ordered the match game for members of Congress and the press? Was it you? I don't, I don't think anyone did, sir. Then how did you get, yeah, okay, come on, that's the most ridiculous item I've ever heard. You don't just all of a sudden pick up numbers in which you have to match those numbers to actually show where they are, and you don't come up with them. Who ordered them to actually match for members of Congress and the press? That's actually what you just described is exactly how it happens. You ha you pick who an event. ordered to find out if Nunez's number was on those calls? If I could just explain, sir. You pick an event of significance in the investigation, and you look for sequencing and patterns surrounding that event. You look then at the numbers and you try to identify what those numbers are and then you start to build the circumstantial case. At this point, that's a wonderful explanation but not an answer to my question. Those are you looking for the four numbers you asked for and to see how they're connected. I understand the subpoena that you issued. My question directly, was it you or was it Chairman Schiff that said while we're doing this, let's see if this matches Chairman Nunez's number. Let's see if this matches a member of the press's number. Somebody along the way just didn't all of a sudden have an epiphany unless you're getting ready to throw a low-level staffer under the bus that these numbers might match. So who did it? Was it Chairman Schiff or was it you? Um, Be careful, you're under oath. I know I'm under oath, sir. Then answer the question. And I, I will answer the question if you give me a second here. It's not a simple answer. The same answer. second that was not afforded to my witness, by the way. Well, well I think he was allowed to Who decided to, to leak question? it, by the way? If you're not going to tell me the other story, while you're thinking about how you're going to answer that question, who decided to leak it? The information. Why did you include it in the report? That's not a leak, sir. Why did you include it in the report? After not saying anything else about this, not publicly known. So two questions are hanging out that everybody's looking for an answer for, including me. Who ordered it? Was it you or was it Chairman Schiff? And then why was it decided, except for nothing but smear purposes, to be included in the Schiff report? Well, I, I'm not going to get into the deliberations of our investigation with you. And I will tell you the reason it was included in the report is because it, it the calls were surrounding important evidence to our investigation. And I think that your question is frankly not better directed not at me, but at the people who were having conversations. Oh, no, no, no. We're not going to play that game. No, we're not going to play that game. You're as good as Mr. Burke. You're not going to play that game. You're not answering the question. And every member of the media, everybody here, when you start going into the decorum of this house, when you start looking at members' telephone numbers, you start looking at reporters' telephone numbers, which they ought to be scared about, you took a subpoena for four and then you decided to play match game, you found numbers that you thought were like, some of them actually didn't exist because you, they claimed that they were for the White House Budget Office and they were not. So we're throwing stories out there because nobody was, nobody was out there acting. So I go back to my question, are you gonna go on record in front of everybody here today and say that you will not tell who ordered this, you or Mr. Goldman? Mr. Goldman, you or Mr. Schiff? I am gonna go on record and tell you that I'm not gonna reveal how we conducted this investigation. And that's the problem we have with this entire thing Mr. Schiff said behind closed doors. I can doors tell you what the importance is. I'm done it. with you for right now. We're done. done. You're not answering the question. You're not being honest about this answer because you know who it is, you're just not answering. Mr. Castor. I have some information on the subpoenas. Let's go. We did receive copies of the subpoenas, and we, we we tracked this. There were six, as I understand it. And, and let me just say at the outset, our, our members have concerns about this exercise for three reasons. You're, the, 
the subpoenas yielded information about members of Congress. Whether they're subpoenaed, the members' phone records or not, it's a concern when the information yields member of Congress's phone records and then the information is publicized. Second is with journalists. It's just generally a very tricky area to start investigating journalists' call records. And the third is, is with regard to Mr. Giuliani, who was serving as the president's personal attorney. But there's six subpoenas, as we understand it. Um, the first went to AT&T for the Giuliani numbers. The second was uh, in regard to Igor Fruman, to a company, uh, CSC Holdings. The third uh, related to Mr. Sondland. That was off to Verizon. The fourth was back to AT&T. Uh, seeking information uh, on a certain number. The fifth was back to AT&T. And the sixth was seeking subscriber information, um, which impacted the, the veteran journalist John Solomon. And also involved with these are, are some, you know, some of the attorneys involved, such Ms. as Castro, can I ask you a question? Ms. Tunsing and Geneva. Ms. Castro, you've been a, a veteran of the Hill investigators for 15 years, and this is crazy. I've never seen anything like this. You never have either. Would it be interesting to note, because Mr. Uh, Goldman chooses not to answer because he doesn't want to incriminate, I believe, either himself or the chairman or somebody else. Would it be interesting to you to find, as you've dealt with uh, committee staff for a long time, somebody to just have a, an epiphany just to do those match records on their own, or were they under direction by somebody to do that? Well, it's, it's obviously they were trying to figure something out. That's it. All right, one last, uh, well, I'm getting ready to try, wait, wait, I have one thing for Mr. Goldman. Mr. Goldman, we're used to committees and people and witnesses coming, taking gratuitous shots at people they don't like. And earlier today, in your testimony, you made a comment that really goes with an interesting thing, and I'll even go back to the chairman questioning motive. When your testimony, you said, as you were discussing Mr. Sondland, you made a very snide comment, your, actually your facial expression showed, that he was a million-dollar donor to the president. The implication being he either got his job because he bought it or his implication was he was loyal to the president and say anything about it. Be very careful about how you throw around dollars in, in giving because you and Mr. Burke are real heavy donors to the Democratic Party. And I'm not going to say it questions your motives or your position here today, but we need to make sure that this thing is already blown out of proportion. We're already not answering questions. And you are here without a pen because your chairman will not testify that says all we need to hear. He don't even stand behind his own report, and he sends you. I hope it works out for you. I'm done. At this point, I turn it over to Ashley. Could I, could I, could I respond? Are you, are you trying no. to say that, that I uh, – what are you trying to say? What is the implication here? But by the way, I didn't give anything close to a million dollars remotely. So I don't no, know. What, the implication 30. is we yeah. want Schiff in that chair, not you. The implication is the person that wrote the report is the person that should come yeah. and present it. And you weren't elected by anybody, and you're here giving gentlemen this testimony not, in place of the chairman. I hope that clears up the implication. The gentleman does not have the time, and the gentleman has been warned before. He cannot simply yell out and disrupt the committee. The gentleman, Mr. Collins, has the time. I think you understand exactly what you did. And I called it out for just the way you did. You thought you were going to get by with it, and you did. That's all I'm saying, Ms. Ash, Ms. Cowan. Well, I would like to just say one other thing. Yeah, I, I, have, I am done. Point of order. There's I am no done. question it, before the, the, the to, to, I mean, you're, 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 you're casting, to, you're to, casting to, aspersions. No, as you did, personally. as you did, Mr. Goldman. Point of order. As you did, Ms. Mr. Sunland. Now, according to the chairman's own ruling just a few minutes ago, I'm done asking questions, and I'm not asking you to elaborate because I'm not asking you any more questions. I've asked all. You won't answer the question on who told 
the committee to actually check these numbers. You won't say if it's you or if it's Mr. Schiff. You won't answer my questions, so we're done. We're going to Ms. Cowan. You're, you have, as, as was Mr. Burke said, you'll have plenty of time with helpful majority well, counsel. Does the bill. gentleman yield his time to Ms. Cowan? Yes. The, gen the gentlelady is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Ms. Cowan, if I may. I'm yes, so certainly. I have, a, I have a number of things I think I, I need to clear up, if I may. Yes, certainly. Um, you have to bear with me because I, I have a, a number of them here. Um, first of all, on the, on the call, Tim Morrison, General Kellogg, have a totally different view of the call than Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and Jennifer Williams. Going to the point that the call is ambiguous. So that, that's the first thing. Tim Morrison testified that he went to the National Security Council lawyers for a very different reason. He, he did not say he went to the NSC lawyers because he was concerned about the call. He went to the National Security Council lawyers for two, for two reasons. Number one, they weren't on the call, so he wanted to update them about it. But number two, he was concerned about leaks. And he was concerned that if this call leaked out, how it would play in Washington's polarized environment, which is exactly what we have here. He was also concerned that if the call leaked, that it might affect bipartisan support in Congress. You, 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 you know, issues of Ukraine have traditionally been one of the, the few issues where Republicans and Democrats share interests. And the third reason was that he didn't, he didn't want the Ukrainians to get a distorted perception of what actually happened on the call, because on the call, we're talking about eight lines of concern uh, and, and a lot of ambiguity. Um, this Oval Office meeting on, on May 23rd, there's this question, I guess it's ambiguous, I didn't think it was ambiguous. But there's a question about whether when the president referred the, dele the delegation goes to the inauguration May 20th. They come back, it's Sondland, it's Volcker, um, and, and it's, it's Secretary Perry and it's Senator Johnson. And they're, they're briefing the president and the president is having none of it. He says Ukraine is concerned or uh, corrupt and he, he doesn't want to invite Zelensky to the White House. Um, and the, the president, and Volcker testifies to this pretty definitively, the president, essentially, he doesn't order anybody to do anything. The president says, talk to Rudy. And Volcker testified, both at, at his deposition and in, at the public hearing, that he didn't take it as a direction. It's just like, look, if you, if you, guys, if you guys think this is important and you want to work it, go, just go talk to Rudy. It's very different than a, than a direction. It's very different than the president ordering a scheme. Um, and it's very, very different from the president sort of collecting up a bunch of agents to go do something. Because he simply, according to Ambassador Volcker, said, go talk to Rudy. Now, whether the Ukrainians knew of the aid pause, or the aid was paused for 55 days. Whether the Ukrainians knew about it or not has been, you know, Laura Cooper from DOD and, you know, some State Department witnesses testified about light queries that they had received. Um, there was an article on November 22nd 
in Bloomberg. And the Zelensky administration said they never knew about the hold in the aid until August 28th Politico article. And they said in, in the article, and Yarmak is the principal person they're relying on here, Yarmak says that they believe the embassy was keeping information from them. Another interesting thing Mr. Yarmak says in that November 22nd Bloomberg article is that he recounts the pull-aside meeting with Sondland, which has become very significant, apparently. In the pull-aside meeting, he says, he doesn't recall it the way Ambassador Sondland recalled it. Now, keep in mind, Ambassador, or, uh, Mr. Yarmak speaks uh, English, but it's not his first language. Um, and so he, he does not recall the pull-aside meeting, which, by the way, happened on the way to an escalator um, after the meeting with the Vice President. So he recalls it very differently. So the question and the facts of what happened between Ambassador Sondland and Mr. Yarmak on the way to the escalator remain in dispute. Now, turning attention to the, the Ron Johnson letter, if I may. Yes. On August 31st, Senator Johnson's getting ready to travel to Ukraine on September 5th with, Sen with Senator um, with Murphy. And he, he wanted, Johnson wanted the aid release, so he calls the president. He actually sought permission to be the bearer of good news. Right. The president said, I'm not ready to, to lift the aid. And they had this, Senator Johnson, I mean, he, he writes a 10-page ten, ten letter, very, um, very detailed. Uh, and he, he gives some, some remarkable detail. Um, and I'd like to read it. It's on page 6. I, I asked, this is Senator Johnson speaking. He said, I asked him whether there was some kind of arrangement where Ukraine would take some action and the hold would be lifted. Without hesitation, Senator Johnson says, President Trump immediately denied such an arrangement existed. And he started cursing. And he said, no way. President Trump said, no way. I would never do that. Who told you that? And Senator Johnson goes on to say that, that President Trump's reaction here was adamant, vehement, and angry. Senator Johnson goes on to say that as of August 31st, the president told him, but I'm, you're going to like my decision in the end. So I think that's very important context on what the president's state of mind was, at least as of August 31st. Right. He fully expected, do you agree, uh, that yeah. the aid would eventually be released after the 55-day pause, yes. right? Absolutely. Yes. Um, I want to thank you all for your presentations. Uh, Mr. Castor, I believe you've been talking for approximately 75 minutes today, um, and I want to thank you for that. Um, My wife thanks you as well. She likes it when I do the talking when she's not around. <laughs> um, time permitting today, I'd like to cover four or five areas, um, distinct areas. Um, there's a lot of facts that the American people have not heard. And there's a lot of contradictions in certain people's testimony. Is that fair to say, Mr. Castor? And I'd like to talk about some of the people in this story that have firsthand knowledge of the facts. 
We have Ambassador Volker, Ambassador Sondland, and Secretary Perry. You had the opportunity to talk to two of those three people. Is that correct? Yes. And the Democrats' report would like us to believe that these three individuals were engaged in some sort of cabal or some sort of nefarious venture. But that's not true, is it? No. In fact, these three people were at all relevant times, and even today, acting in the best interest of the American people. Is that true? That's right, and with the highest integrity. That's right. I think everyone testified that Ambassador Volker is one of the most experienced diplomats in our foreign service. Across the correct? board, all the witnesses, including Ambassador Yovanovitch, talked about the integrity that Ambassador Volker brings to the table. But there's a lot of people with firsthand knowledge that we didn't talk to. Is that correct? Yes. Um, now I want to talk about uh, the president's skepticism of foreign aid. The president is very skeptical of foreign aid. Is that correct? He is deeply skeptical of sending U.S. taxpayer dollars into an environment that is corrupt because it's as good as kissing it goodbye. And is that something new that he believes or is that something he ran on? This is something that he has ran on. It's something that he has implemented policies as soon as he became president. Ambassador Hale, the third ranking State Department official, told us about the over, you know, overall review of all foreign aid programs and he described it as almost a zero-based uh, evaluation. Right, and you had the opportunity to take the deposition of Mark Sandy, who is a career official at OMB, is that right? Correct. And he had some information about the reason for the pause. Is that true? I think that he had a conversation with an individual named Rob Blair, and Mr. Blair provided some insight into the reason for the pause. Sandy was one of the few witnesses that we had that was able to give us a first-hand account inside of OMB, the, the reason for the, for, the, for the pause related to the president's concern about European burden, burden sharing right. in the region. And he, and really? in fact, in his conversations, the president's conversations with Senator Johnson, he mentions his concern about burden sharing. And I believe he referenced a conversation that he had with the Chancellor of Germany. Um, and in fact, the whole first part of the July 24th transcript, he's talking about burden sharing and wanting the Europeans to do more. Um, but Yeah, I mean, Senator Johnson was, and President Trump were, they were pretty candid and, you know, they believed that allies like Germany were, were laughing at us because we were so willing to, to spend the aid. Right. Um, now I'd like, you know, there's been a lot of uh, allegations that President Zelensky is not being candid about feeling pressure from President Trump. And isn't it true that he stated over and over publicly that he felt no pressure 
from President Trump. Is that true? Yeah, he's, he said it consistently. He said it in the United Nations September 25th. He said it, um, you know, in three more news availabilities over the course of the period, including last week. I want to change subject, subjects and talk about something that Professor Turley raised last week, and that is um, the partisan nature of this investigation. Uh, and you're an experienced congressional investigator. And, and Professor Turley, by the way, I mean, he's no Trump supporter. That's right. Oh. He is a Democrat. That's right. Um, and, but Professor Turley cautioned that a partisan inquiry is not what the founders envisioned. Is that correct? Correct. And the worst thing you can have with an impeachment is partisan rancor because right. nobody's going to accept the result on the other side. And our Democrat friends have all of a sudden become originalists and are citing the founders and their intent routinely as part of this impeachment process. I think that goes to the, this, 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 whether this constitutes uh, br bribery. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's case law on bribery, and I'm no, I'm no Supreme Court scholar or lawyer or advocate, but, um, you know, there's new case law with the McDonald case about what constitutes an official act, and that certainly hasn't been, um, you know, addressed in this space, and I, th I think Professor Turley mentioned that. Right, and I think Professor Turley said that a meeting certainly does not constitute an official act. I think it's the McDonald case. Right. Um, goes to and that. And Professor Turley pointed that out for us last mm -hmm. week. Yes. Um, since this inquiry's unofficial and unsanctioned start in September, the process has been partisan, biased, unfair. Um, Republicans questioning has been curtailed routinely. Um, I think we saw that uh, in Lieutenant Colonel Vindeman's deposition. There were some, you know. Yeah, we were barred from asking him questions about who he communicated his concerns to. Right. Very basic things like who, what, when, where. And instead. And I would say, too, this, this rapid, you know, we're in day 76, and it's almost impossible to do a sophisticated congressional investigation that quickly, especially when the stakes are this high, because any congressional investigation of any consequence, it, it, it does take a little bit of time for the two sides to stake out their, their interests and how they're going to respond to them. Um, right. You know, we learned with the Goodlatte Gowdy probe, you know, the first letter I think went in October of um, 2017. And, you know, in December we finally got a witness. And it was the following spring with the, in the Goodlatte Gowdy probe, after a lot of pushing and pulling, and a lot of tug of war, we, we reached a deal with DOJ where we went, we went down to DOJ and they gave us access to documents and they gave us access to, I think, you know, north of 800,000 pages. But they made us come down there. They made us go into a skiff and these documents weren't classified. Um, and, it, you know, it wasn't until May and June of that year that we started this process when the investigation had been ongoing, and, and that is 
uh, disappointing. Obviously, we all wish there was an easy button, but congressional investigations of consequence uh, take time. Right. And it took, I think, six months before the first document was even produced. And like you said, you had to go down there mm -hmm. and review it in camera. Mm -hmm. And then going back even further to Fast and Furious, mm -hmm. the investigation of the death of a yeah. Border Patrol agent. I mean, Fast and Furious, we issued subpoenas. Mr. Issa um, had sent some subpoenas, I think, in February of 20, um, 2011. And we, we, we had a hearing in June with experts about proceeding to contempt. You know, what does it take to go to contempt? And that, that was the first time in June when we got any production. And the production was largely publicly available information. And we, went, we spent most of the year trying to get information out of the Justice Department. At the time, we were also working um, with whistleblowers who, who were providing us documents. And uh, Chairman Issa at the time, then in October, issued another subpoena that was um, to the Justice Department. And so the, the investigation had been ongoing most of the year. We were talking to whistleblowers, we're doing interviews. And we're doing our best to get documents out of the Justice Department through that channel, but it, it, these things take time. Right. Certainly and not you, 76 days. Yes. And if you truly want to uncover every fact, as you should in an impeachment, do you agree? You have to go to court sometimes and enforce your subpoenas. And here, my understanding is we have a lot of requests for information, voluntary information, <laughs> You know, will you please provide us with documents on X, Y, Z? And I think, and I think that's great, but you have to back it up with something. Isn't that correct? Well, there's a number of ways to enforce your request. I mean, the, the fundamental rule of any congressional investigation is you, you, you rarely get what you're asking for unless and until the alternative is less palatable for the respondent. So. You know, you issue a subpoena and you're trying to get documents. You know, one technique you can use is try to talk to the, you know, a document custodian or somebody in, le you know, the let fairs function about what documents exist. Um, Chairman Chaffetz, during his era, had, he used to have these document production status hearings where you'd bring, bring in ledge affairs officials and try to get the lay of the land. Because, you know, ledge affairs officials, at least nominally, are supposed to be um, directly responsible serving the interests. Um, you can saber rattle, it's legal to saber rattle about uh, holding somebody in contempt. Uh, oftentimes, witnesses who are reluctant to cooperate and come forward, when you, when you, when you attach a contempt proceeding or a prospective contempt proceeding uh, to their name, a, a lot of times that changes the outcome. Uh, and with, with a contempt proceeding, you've got a couple different steps along the way. You could raise the prospect of a contempt proceeding. You could schedule a contempt proceeding. Uh, after you schedule a contempt proceeding, you could, you know, hold the door open for documents or interviews, and then you could push it off. Uh, you could go through at the committee level. And these are all sort of milestone events, which historically are unpalatable or less palatable for the administration that sometimes starts to move the needle. And, and with these types of disputes, once you get the ball rolling, you know, with the Good Luck Gowdy probe, we didn't get a witness, and it was Deputy Director Andrew McCabe in for, you know, it was a couple months. But once we got Deputy Director McCabe in, 
couple weeks later, we got uh, Director Comey's chief of staff. A couple weeks later, I mean, the witnesses start, once you get the ball rolling, um, you, you, again, you don't always like 100% of the terms. Sometimes you got to deal with agency counsel. Sometimes you got to go look in, in camera. But once you get the ball rolling, usually it leads to positive results and, and historically has allowed the Congress to do its work. And were any of those things done here? No. In fact, they decided we're not going to we're not going to subpoena certain people that are important. Is that fair to say? And we're not going to go to court and enforce them. So these people have, you know, these folks that are caught mm -hmm. in an interbranch struggle. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's an unfortunate position for any employee. Of the well, one of the concerning government. things is, is Dr. Kupperman, who has been described uh, by Dr. Fiona Hill and a number of witnesses as a as a a solid citizen, a good witness, um, he, he filed a lawsuit in the, in, in the face of a subpoena, and um, a judge was assigned to a Judge Leon, uh, and the, the issues the Kupperman raised were slightly different than the Don McGahn issues, because, you know, Don McGahn is the personal, or the White House counsel. Kupperman, of course, is a national security official. Um, Kupperman, you know, filed the lawsuit seeking guidance. Kupperman wasn't asking the court to tell him not to come testify. To the contrary, Kupperman was seeking the court's guidance to facilitate his cooperation. And, and ultimately, um, this, the committee with, withdrew the subpoena, <laughs> um, yeah. which, which raises questions about whether the committee's really interested in getting to the bottom of some of these issues. Right. Instead, the committee's chosen the Intelligence Committee, has chosen to rely on Ambassador Sondland and his testimony. I think they rely 600 times in their report. I'll tell you what I did. I, I, on this point, I, yesterday, I opened the Democrat report, and I did a control F, yes. you know, control F. Yes. And Sondland's name shows up, I think, 611 times. Um, in, in fairness, it's, it's going to be double counted because, you know, if it's in a sentence and then it's in a footnote, that's two. Um, but in relative comparison to the other witnesses, um, Sondland's relied on big time. Yes. And I think Dr. Hill testified that she at some point confronted him about his actions. Yeah, the, the, the record is mixed on this front. Um, Dr. Hill talks about raising concerns with Sondland, and Sondland in his deposition at least doesn't, you know, he didn't share the same view. And there's a lot of instances of that, where Ambassador Sondland recalls one thing and other witnesses recall another. Is that correct? Sondland is a witness, is a, uh, and he's a bit of an enigma. Let's just say it that way. Um, he was, you know, he was pretty certain in his deposition that the, the security assistance wasn't linked to anything. Um, and then he submitted a, he submitted an addendum. Yes, a, I call that the pretzel sentence. <laughs> and even in that addendum or supplement or whatever it's called, um, it, you know, it's 
talk to him and her and, and anyway, Sondland uh, ends with, you know, I presumed. Right. So, so it wasn't really any firsthand information. Right. We don't have a lot of firsthand information here, is that correct? On certain facts, we, we don't. I mean, we have firsthand information on the May 23rd meeting in the Oval Office. We've got a lot of firsthand information, although all conflicting. Um, on the July 10th meeting, um, there, there are, you know, episodes, I think, during the course of this investigation that we have been able to at least get everyone's account. Um, but the investigation hasn't, hasn't been able to reveal, you know, firsthand evidence relating to the president other than the, the call transcript. And I think we've already talked about this, that Ambassador Sondland would presume things, assume things, and form opinions based on what other people told him, and then he would use those as firsthand. Is that correct? Um, you know, it started with his role with the Ukraine portfolio. A lot of people at the State Department were wondering why the ambassador to the EU was so engaged in you know, issues relating to the Ukraine. And, you know, there, there are answers for that. You know, Ukraine is an aspirant to join the EU. Um, and there, there's a lot of other reasons, and Mr. Turner, I think, explored this really well at the, at the open hearing. Um, but we, we asked Ambassador Sondland, he said that he did a TV interview in Kyiv on, on the 26th of July, where he said the president's given me, you know, a lot of assignments, and he's, the president's assigned me Ukraine and so forth. But then when we asked him in his deposition, he conceded that he was, in fact, spinning that the president never assigned him to Ukraine, that he was just, uh, he was, you know, he's, he was exaggerating. Um, and I think at the public hearings, you pointed out that in contrast to other witnesses, Ambassador Sondland isn't a note taker. He, in fact, he said, I do not recall dozens of times in his deposition. Uh, let's say it this way, you know, Ambassador, Taylor um, walked us through his, his um, standard operating procedure for taking notes. He told us about having a notebook on his desk and a notebook in his coat pocket of his suit, and he brought it with us and he, he, he showed us. So consequently, when Ambassador Taylor recounts to us, you know, what happened, it's backed up by these contemporaneous notes. Um, Ambassador Sondland, on the other hand, was, was very clear that, you know, on first hand, he said that he did not have access to his State Department records. While he said that at the public hearing, simultaneously, the State Department issued a tweet, I think, or a statement at least, saying that wasn't true, that no, nobody is keeping Ambassador Sondland from his emails. You know, he's still a State Department employee. He's, he can go, um, you, you know, he does have access to his records, but he stated he didn't. Um, and he stated that he doesn't have any notes because he doesn't take notes. Uh, and he conceded that he doesn't uh, have recollections of, on a lot of these issues. And, you know, we sort of made a list of them. And I, I think at the hearing I called it the, the trifecta of unreliability. Yes. And you're not the only person that has concerns about Ambassador Sondland's testimony, conduct, um, I think other witnesses took issue with his conduct. Is that correct? 
Yeah, uh, Tim Morrison um, talked about instances where an Ambassador Sondland uh, was sort of showing up uninvited. I, I, Morrison didn't understand why Sondland was trying to get into the Warsaw meeting September 1st. Um, and, and Dr. Hill, Fiona Hill, told us uh, about issues of that sort and a number of witnesses, uh, you're correct. And Ambassador Reeker and Ambassador Sondland too, correct? Yeah, I believe Ambassador Reeker said he was a problem. He was a problem, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Dr. Hill raised concerns about his behavior and said that he might be a intelligence risk. Is that correct? She, she did. She, she, she had issues with his uh, tendency to pull out his mobile device and make telephone calls. Right. And which obviously can be monitored yes. by the bad guys. And we talked about how he was spinning that, you know, certain things, and he admitted that, how he was spinning. Um, and he admitted he exaggerated. Yes. And he also, he, you know, when it comes to his communications with the president, we tried to get him to list all the communications with the president. I think he gave us six. And then... When he was back, at, you know, he walked us through each communication with the president. And by the way, it was about a Christmas party. It was about when the president of Finland was here. And then um, uh, Congresswoman Speer asked him the same question in the open hearing. And he, he said that he had talked to the president like 20 times. So the, the record is mixed. I think my time's up. Thank you both. Go back. The gentleman you Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman. Under the five-minute rule. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Mr. Chairman, I move to recess for 30 minutes pursuant to Clause 1A of Rule 11. He's not re he's not re okay. The gentleman has Mr. moved. A, have, I'm sorry. The gentleman has moved to recess for how long? Uh, for 30 minutes, sir. For 30 minutes. That is a privileged motion. Uh, it was not debatable. Uh, all in favor, say aye. 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 No. 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 The no's have it. The motion is not agreed to. As for roll call vote, please. Roll call is requested. The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Nadler? No. Mr. Nadler votes no. Ms. Lofgren? No. Ms. Lofgren votes no. Ms. Jackson Lee? No. Ms. Jackson Lee votes no. Mr. Cohen? Mr. Johnson of Georgia? No. Mr. Johnson of Georgia votes no. Mr. Deutsch? No. Mr. Deutsch votes no. Mr. Ms. Bass? No. Ms. Bass votes no. Mr. Richmond? No. Mr. Richmond votes no. Mr. Jeffries? Mr. Jeffries votes no. Mr. Cicilline? No. Mr. Cicilline votes no. Mr. Swalwell? No. Mr. Swalwell votes no. Mr. Liu? Mr. Liu votes no. Mr. Raskin? No. Mr. Raskin votes no. Ms. Jayapal? Ms. Jayapal votes no. Ms. Demings? Ms. Demings votes no. Mr. Correa? Mr. Correa votes no. Ms. Scanlon? No. Ms. Scanlon votes no. Ms. Garcia? No. Ms. Garcia votes no. Mr. Neguse? No. Mr. Neguse votes no. Ms. McBath? Ms. McBath votes no. Mr. Stanton? No. Mr. Stanton votes no. Ms. Dean? No. Ms. Dean votes no. Ms. McCarcel Powell? No. Ms. McCarcel Powell votes no. Ms. Escobar? No. Ms. Escobar votes no. Mr. Collins? Aye. Mr. Collins votes aye. Mr. Sensenbrenner? Aye. Mr. Sensenbrenner votes aye. Mr. Chabot? Mr. Chabot votes aye. Mr. Gomert? Mr. Gomert votes aye. Mr. Jordan? Mr. Jordan votes yes. Mr. Buck? Mr. Ratcliffe? Mr. Ratcliffe votes yes. Ms. Roby? Ms. Roby votes aye. Mr. Gates? Mr. Gates votes aye. Mr. Johnson of Louisiana. Aye. Mr. Johnson of Louisiana votes aye. Mr. Biggs. Aye. Mr. Biggs votes aye. Mr. McClintock. Aye. Mr. McClintock votes aye. Ms. Lesko. 
Ms. Lesko votes aye. Mr. Reschenthaler? Aye. Mr. Reschenthaler votes aye. Mr. Klein? Mr. Armstrong? Yes. Mr. Armstrong votes yes. Mr. Stubbe? Yes. Mr. Stubbe votes yes. Mr. Chairman, the, uh, Mr. Chairman, how am I recorded? Mr. Cohen, you are not recorded. I'd like to be recorded as no. Mr. Cohen votes no. Are there any other members who have wished to vote who have not voted? The clerk will report. Mr. Chairman, there are 15 ayes and 24 noes. The uh, motion is not agreed to. Now we will engage in questions under the five-minute rule. I yield myself five minutes for the purpose of questioning the witnesses. Mr. Goldman, can you please explain the difference between Vice President Biden's request to Ukraine a few years ago and President Trump's request to, to Ukraine earlier this year? Yes, when Vice President Biden uh, pressured the Ukrainian president to remove the corrupt prosecutor general. He was doing so with an international consensus um, as part of U.S. policy. The entire European Union supported that. The IMF supported that. The IMF, which also gave the loans that, that he was referring to. And so he did that as part of the entire um, international community's consensus. And when President Trump is asking for this investigation of uh, Joe Biden. All of the witnesses, every single one, testified that that had nothing to do with official U.S. policy. And, President, and Vice President Biden's request had no personal political benefit, whereas President Trump's request did? Yes. In fact, if the witnesses testified that if that corrupt prosecutor general were actually removed, it would be because he was not prosecuting corruption. So the witnesses said that by removing that prosecutor general and adding a new one, that there was an increased chance that corruption in Ukraine would be prosecuted, including as it related to the Burisma company, which his um, son was on the board of. Thank you. Now, Mr. Goldman, can you please explain exactly what happened with the phone records obtained by the Intelligence Committee? Yeah, thank you. I, I, I would like to set the record straight on that. This is a, a very basic and usual investigative practice where people involved in a scheme or suspected to be involved in a scheme, uh, investigators routinely seek their records. And just to be very clear, this is metadata. It is only call to, call from, and length. It is not the content of the calls uh, or the text messages. So there's no content, there's no risk of invading any communications with lawyers or journalists or attorney client that none of that exists and there are no risks to that. And so what we did is for the people that several of the people that we had investigated and subpoenaed and who were uh, alleged to be part of the scheme, we got call records so that we could corroborate some of their testimony or figure out maybe there's additional communications that we were unaware of. What we then did is we took the call records and we match it up with important events that occurred during the scheme. And we start to see if there are patterns, because call records can be quite powerful circumstantial evidence. In this case, it just so happened that people who were involved in the President Trump's scheme were communicating with the President's lawyer, uh, who was also involved in the scheme, a journalist, a staff member of Congress, and another member of Congress. We, of course, did not at all seek in any way, shape, or form to do any investigation on anyone, a member of Congress or a staff member of Congress. It just happened to be that they were in communication with people involved in the president's scheme. And everything you did was basically standard operating procedure for a well-run investigation? Every investigation in 10 years that I did, probably, uh, we got call records. For. Thank you. Mr. Goldman.
Did White House counsel make his view clear about witnesses and evidence requested by the investigating committees? And what was that view? Uh, we never heard from the White House counsel. They, we, other than the letter, which basically just said, we will not at all cooperate with this investigation in any way, shape, or form. They never reached out to engage in this accommodation process. It was a complete stonewall. Not only will the White House not uh, participate and not cooperate and not respond to the duly authorized subpoenas of Congress, but we are, the White House says we are also going to direct every other executive branch agency to defy Thank you. This now, I have a series of questions, and please keep your answers brief if you can. During last week's hearing, my Republican colleague said that Congress has not built a sufficient record to impeach the President at this stage. As a former prosecutor, you have spent years building substantial case records. What is the strength of the record here? I think we have moved fast, and I think that the evidence is really overwhelming. Uh, we have 17 witnesses with overlapping and consistent statements. And the committee managed to collect such a compelling record in the face of unprecedented ob obstruction by the President, correct? Yes. And was the obstruction so pervasive that the evidence pointed to a course of conduct or a plan to cover up any presidential misconduct? We, we did find that there was an effort to conceal the President's conduct, yes. And I understand that on October 8th, the White House wrote a letter explaining that President Trump had directed his administration not to cooperate with the White House's impeachment inquiry. <coughs> In the letter, the White House counsel wrote, quote, President Trump cannot permit his administration to participate in this partisan inquiry under the circumstances. Now, the investigative committees tried to interview dozens of witnesses, and w including current and former Trump administration officials, and were stymied with respect to most of them. Is that correct? Um, there were 12 witnesses who were directed not to appear, and ultimately they did not appear. Thank you very much. My time has expired. I yield to the uh, ranking, uh, ranking member, Mr. Collins. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Goldman, it's an interesting thing now. So now we can commit basically extortion or pr pressure on others if, as long as we have the international community behind us. As long as we get enough people to think we're okay, I can then go extort anybody I want to. As long as enough people think it's okay, that was in essence what you just said, whether you believe it or not, that's what, as I copied the notes, but I want to go to the phone records. It's a novel approach. The phone records issue, and I'm not, and hear me clearly, I have no problem with the subpoena as far as the subpoena power from Congress, not a problem. My problem, as you did not answer in the previous, though, is taking the metadata, the numbers, I did not say anything. It's interesting you had to go and say, well, there's no uh, content, anything else. We've had that debate in Congress now for the last few years on the FISA program and other things, which, by the way, this committee should be hearing FISA this week. The IG report just came out, and we're doing this. It's interesting to, to see to me that the calls in the metadata and not the content, what the problem I have here is this, is if Rudy Nunez... Uh, Giuliani, Nunez, Harvey were the only phone records returned from the subpoena. Um, why are these released? Here's the problem. You took the committee, and this is why I want to know who ordered it. The committee made a choice. Chairman Schiff, who I'm assuming because he's not here, or you, who did get to come, at least thank you for showing up, made a conscious choice to put these records into the report. It was a drive-by. It was a gratuitous drive-by that you wanted to smear the ranking member or smear these others because they were in those numbers that were connected to that. I'm not saying you knew the content, I'm not saying anything else. In fact, you just admitted just a second ago that it was simply they were contacting these people. The problem I have with that is, is you could have just as easily put, if you were really wanting to do a professional non-smear report, it said Congressperson 1 or Congressperson 2, Reporter 1, Reporter 2, because if they did not actually contribute to your report, it is nothing but a drive-by. That's the problem I have here. 
I have no problem with you working here. I have no problem with the report. I have no problem with the subpoena. And you can pretty it up all you want. That was nothing but showed the American people that at least for a moment, the uh, Schiff report became a partisan smear against other members we don't like because there's other alternatives for you to do. I have no problem, as I said, with you doing proper oversight. I've had a lot of issues with how this oversight's done. But don't make it up and don't not tell me or the rest of this committee who ordered that. That was nothing more than a smear campaign. And to say it's not is being disingenuous with this committee. The chairman gave you a chance to actually rehabilitate, and you made it worse. Because at the end of the day, those got put out. And by the way, it also a fuller record got leaked to the, from executive session, got leaked to the Washington Post. And I don't understand, you know, except how we can say this is okay. How do we say this is fine? This is how we have devolved. And the members on the majority now may be members of the minority at some point. And if we're setting the standard for this is where we're going with these kind of investigations, then we're in trouble. We're in deep trouble because this is another thing that the founders, you and others today, Mr. Burke had said earlier, the founders were deeply concerned about a lot of things. One of the biggest things they were concerned about as opposed to well, now I'm glad that most of everybody on the dais is now an originalist. Except this, they also were concerned about a partisan impeachment. A partisan impeachment because you don't like his policies. You don't like what he said and you don't like how he said it. I don't like the way Joe Biden said it, but you blew that off as everybody has uh, the, the backing of the international community. What we have become is a perpetual state of impeachment. And that is the problem that everyone on this dais should have. But don't come here and be a person who is a witness, sworn witness, and not answer the questions. Adam Schiff's doing that fine without you. But don't come here and say, I'm not going to say because you know good and well, sometime at some conference, at some committee room, in some little room, somebody said, hey, this is interesting because I have Devin Nunez's phone number. That number matches. And we're going to put it in the report, not because we think Devin Nunez is a part of this, but because he had a phone call with somebody that we were investigating. That's a drive-by. And it's beneath you, and it's beneath this Congress. And that is why I have such a problem with this. And then you leaked further information. This is the problem here. And we can be righteous about trying to get this president or not, but when it comes to this, this is why people are getting so dis just turned off by this whole thing. When we understand that, that is the problem I have. Because you could have handled this differently. You and Mr. Schiff. I'm going to blame the chairman because I hold the member, the one with the pen, responsible. So I'm going to assume he ordered this. He was the one that said put their names in here. And he was the one who can't come and defend that. Unfortunately, he sent you. And you had to take it. That's wrong. And this committee deserves better. With that, I yield back. The gentleman yields back. Uh, gentlelady from California is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The gist of the uh, question here is the potential of abuse of the president's power to benefit himself in the next election. Now, America is based on free and fair elections, and after Russia interfered in the 2016 election, the American people are rightfully concerned about ensuring that the next election is free of foreign interference. And keeping that in mind, I'd like to ask you, Mr. Goldman, the following question. Ambassador Sondland testified that according to Rudy Giuliani, quote, President Trump wanted a public statement from President Zelensky committing to investigations of Burisma and the 2016 election. Isn't that correct? Yes. And Ambassador Sondland testified, as the screen in front of you shows, 
that President Zelensky, quote, had to announce the investigations. He didn't actually have to do them. Correct. Mr. Col Goldman, you're an experienced former prosecutor. Is it common to announce an investigation but not actually to conduct the investigation? No, usually it works the reverse. Normally you don't announce the investigation because you want to develop as much evidence while it's not, while it's not uh, public. Because if it's public, then you run into problems of people matching up testimony and witnesses tailoring their, their testimony, which is part of the reason why the closed depositions in our investigation right. were so important. <clears throat> so what did that evidence, this evidence about the announcement, tell you about why President Trump would only care about President Zelensky announcing the investigations but not actually conducting them? There were two things that it said. One is, whatever he claims, uh, the president claims about his desire to root out corruption, even if you assume that these investigations are for that purpose, as he has stated, uh, it undermines that because he doesn't actually care if the investigations are done. So even if you assume, which I don't think the evidence supports, that it's corruption, then he's still not doing the corruption investigations. And the second is, he just wanted the public announcement. The private confirmation was not enough, and that's an indication that he wanted the political benefit from them. It looks to me that the announcement of the investigation could benefit the president politically because the announcement alone could be Twitter fodder between now and the next election to smear a political rival. Um, that's consistent with the findings. You know, President Nixon attempted to corrupt elections, and his agents broke into Democratic Party headquarters to get a leg up on the election, and then he tried to cover it up, just as we've seen some obstruction here. But even more concerning in this case, President Trump not only appears to have abused the power of his office to help his own reelection campaign, he used a foreign government to do his bidding, and he used military aid as leverage to get the job done. Now, this aid was approved by Congress. It was appropriated on a bipartisan basis for Ukraine to fight Russia, who'd invaded them. And while uh, aid, this aid was withheld, people died while this aid was being withheld. And some, you know, have argued since ultimately the aid was released that there was not a problem. But Mr. Goldman, isn't it true that the aid was released only after the president got caught and only after Congress learned of the scheme to make this life or death aid conditional on this announcement of investigation of his political rival? There were several things that, that made uh, the president realize that this was coming to a head and could not be concealed. Uh, the whistleblower complaint was circulating around the White House. The congressional committees announced their own investigation and then the perhaps uh, the Washington Post op-ed on September 5th linking the two, and then the Inspector General notified the committee that there was this whistleblower complaint that was being withheld Correct. by the Trump administration. Correct. Well, I've made it clear throughout this investigation that I didn't want to be part of a third impeachment uh, inquiry, but the direct evidence is very damning. And the President hasn't offered any evidence to the contrary. We've asked, we've subpoenaed, We've invited the president, and nothing has come forward. If he had evidence of his innocence, 
why wouldn't he bring it forward? You know, this is a very serious matter that strikes at the heart of our Constitution. And it's a concern that we are here. But I've heard over and over again that this is too fast. Well, Ms. Jackson, Lee, and I were talking. We were both members of this committee during the Clinton impeachment. That took 73 days. We're here on the 76th day. We need to proceed. And I thank you, Mr. Goldman, for your hard work and for your presentation. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Without objection, the hearing will stand in recess for 15 minutes.